military installations are to fire on sight at any flying objects not identifiable. But even as they did so, the military wondered whether their scientific know-how and their best weapons would be effective in any battle of the Earth versus the flying for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. And remember, my friend, future events such as these will affect you in the future. You are interested in the unknown, the mysterious, the unexplainable. That is why you are here. And now, for the first time, we are bringing to you the full story of what happened on that fateful day. We are giving you all the evidence based only on the secret testimony of the miserable souls who survived this terrifying ordeal. The incidents, the places. My friend, we cannot keep this a secret any longer. Let us punish the guilty. Let us reward the innocent. My friend, can your heart stand the shocking facts about Radio Mysterioso? I have no idea what I'm doing. It's Radio Mysterioso for um, February 9th. Is it 9th? Where's my watch? I don't know what day it is. Of uh, 2014. Come on, Nick. What's today? Oh, yes. Sunday, February 9th. And uh, in the studio with me, us, all of us, world-renowned author and uh, lecturer at uh, the... uh, what is it? The uh, what, what? The Con- West Coast? You uh, sorry. Conscious life expert. Okay, that's what it's called now. Uh, for this this past weekend, include. Are you getting uh, too much bass in there? Oh, wait, I got to put more bass in mine because I'm no. the host. There we go. No. <laughs> um, <clears throat> an author most recently, unless I've lost uh, track, of uh, for nobody's eyes only, which we have a copy on the book here, a copy of the book on the table here. Um, Nick was in town, and I thought, hey, he's here Sunday night. I think he's free. Maybe he's free. And he called me yesterday and said, yeah, I'll be free, Greg. So so <laughs> he agreed to come down and be on the show. Hello, Nick. Hey, Greg. How's it going? Uh, we've got feedback. That's one thing that's going on. I wonder why. But we can still hear your mic, right? You have to be right in front of it. Like that. Though it may smell funny. <laughs> One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. There, there we go. Let me just turn down that. Wow, I guess we just can't hear ourselves while we talk. Wow, I wonder what's causing that. There, MIB. That may yeah, there's a little bit. MIB. It's MIB. Uh, I went and picked Nick up at the um, airport just now, and I said, Nick, you know who lives near here? <laughs> took him about half a second. He said, Albert K. Bender. He's like, yes. <laughs> And he said, if we go over his house, we'll probably give him a heart attack and he'll die. 
<laughs> I don't want to kill Albert K. Bender, but I do want. If there's anybody I want to go over to um, Bender's house with, it's probably be Nick. So we, there's a chance we may yeah. do that in the morning. We'll take some photographs outside and lurk sinisterly. <laughs> <laughs> I'll get I'll get a uh, like a top hat and a suit to wear. <laughs> oh, I draw the line at that. Yeah. Plus, Nick didn't pack any of that stuff. Yeah. Nick doesn't own any of that stuff. No, I don't think I do. Well, I don't have I don't have an outfit like that. Mm-hmm. You have to get closer to the microphone. I'm sorry. Oh, yes. Love that. You've been on the radio before, Nick. Yeah, you know, I know. Yeah. I just forget. That's all. Um, I I uh, typed a bunch of questions on my phone. Do you want to talk about your book? Oh, I don't care what we talk about. That's quite. I was quite surprised. You've gone to the trouble of printing out questions. I mean, oh my God. I know. I typed them out. Otherwise, I can't remember them. <laughs> okay. Unless no, we just I, talk about stuff we normally talk about anyway, which we'll, we, will, we will do anyway. Do a bit of everything if you want. Yeah, you slag. 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 I love that. that I love it. Every time I see Nick, that, that phrase comes up because of the uh, Maury Island incident. <laughs> you they, slag. <laughs> the UFO released what appeared to be Slag. <laughs> it dropped a bunch of loose women on Puget Sound. <laughs> Slag. <laughs> but it probably did actually. Uh, maybe. Uh, so the the book is called Nobody for Nobody's Eyes Only, and the subtitle is. We'll talk about this for a little while. Let's be like vaguely relevant. Uh, and then we'll talk about how useless disclosure is. Missing government, uh, for nobody's eyes only, missing government files and hidden archives that document the truth behind the most in- enduring <laughs> conspiracy theories by Nick Redfern. <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> that wasn't bad at all. <laughs> um, and what I get out of the book, actually, reading it when I got it, and then a little bit more when, I, when Nick called me, I said, oh, shit, I better read some more of this book before <laughs> Nick comes on. Um, I'm uh, I'm that far through it, so I guess oh, okay. like you know, mm-hmm. a little over three quarters. Um, so I didn't get to the juicy part at the end yet, but the uh, gist of the book, which is kind of interesting, is there are a lot of files that are that the government or governments or people say that are missing, that are pointed to by other files that aren't missing. Mm-hmm. And and when you go in and say, well, what about this file that says that the, this happened at this time? We don't know anything about that. <laughs> we don't know what happened to that. We we have searched our files and cannot find anything uh, uh, pursuant to your request. Is that basically what's going on in the book? And, yeah. and it ranges over UFOs, MK yeah. Ultra, Hollywood stars, mm-hmm. um, political figures, etc. Yeah, the the basic theme of the book is looking at various conspiracy theories and trying to. Not so much prove the conspiracy theory, but at least demonstrate there are a lot of suspicions, not by what we find, but what we don't find. And what we actually don't find is official evidence that files have been destroyed, burned, shredded, lost, or have just vanished under circumstances we just don't understand at all. So in other words, many books prove the conspiracy or try to outline a conspiracy by what they find. This sort of delves into demonstrating as a conspiracy because of things that have suspiciously gone missing because <laughs> things you can't find yeah uh was that a hard was that a hard sell to the publishers no it actually wasn't because they kind of liked the idea of of taking like a unique twist on how you investigate a conspiracy you know right and um and when things are being pulled and shredded and you can prove it's happened deliberately then it kind of adds weight to the idea that it's not the the event itself wasn't as down to earth as you know people might have you believe or whatever right 
Nick's giving me the answers he gives when he's on a, a regular radio show, and they say, "So, Mr. Redfern, what is this book about?" <laughs> yeah, I go into like machine mode, you know. <laughs> Let's take yeah. You know, somebody at work said, "I'm going to be interviewed on the radio. What should I do?" I said, um, "Think, uh, yeah, think that everybody that's listening to you has better things to do, and you have to get some the most interesting <laughs> thing out to them in the shortest amount of time possible." Well, I mean. I don't know if that's particularly interesting or not, but files no, have no. Gone I mean, better. it's that. That's a. I don't know if that's what you were doing, but yeah, you you oh. fall into that. Sir Nick, Mister Redfern, yeah. what's this book about? You have well, to like, you know. You most have to people spit it might out. find it more interesting if I like click like cluck like a chicken or something. Oh, I know what I wanted to ask you, and I didn't bring them up. Yes, exactly. Um, but only if you answer in the. <laughs> In the form of a duck. Uh, quack. If, quack. If, if strawberry <laughs> jam is called, <laughs> oh, yeah. if strawberry uh, jelly is called jam, no, and grape no, no, jelly is called... No, 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 no. No? No. Then you ask me. Oh, okay. Well, the, the question you're... If you got to, if there's a UFO research you really don't like, you want to put them on the spot and make it look stupid on stage. <laughs> when it comes to Q&A, you ask the question... If strawberry flavored jam is called strawberry jam and raspberry flavored jam is called raspberry jam, why is orange flavored jam called marmalade? And that's a good way to stun them and silence them or just infuriate them. So. Yeah. Didn't Jonathan Downs ask that very Jonathan question? Jonathan Downs did. Who did he ask it? Me. <laughs> <laughs> that's, why, that's why I remember it. <laughs> what did the audience do? Oh, they all rolled around laughing. And it was funny, you know. So. Was this in Britain? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, like 12, 13 years ago. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, that's perfect. If you, yeah. if you, somebody asked you that here, there would be dumbfounded silence and about five people laughing their asses off. <laughs> it's like with Matthew Williams, friend of mine, who you know as well. Yeah. Um, Matthew did a, a filmed interview with Nick Pope all about his work at the Ministry of Defence. And he's like, so, Nick, you know, you've investigated these cases, these sightings, we've got radar reports... You know, there have been close encounters, trace landings, that kind of thing. And so, after all these years of investigating it, Nick, what's your favourite colour? <laughs> and that's where Matthew cuts off the, uh, cut off the interview. <laughs> what did Nick Pope do? Just stare at him blankly? Kind of, yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so that was pretty good. There needs to be more of that. Yeah. Like that. And what about Marilyn Monroe? What happened to her late that one night in 1962? She got off. Oh, I thought you were going to keep clucking like a chicken. Well, actually, with Marilyn Monroe, I mean, this is the interest. We genuinely is interesting, regardless of how you look at her death, whether it was suicide, murder, or she was found still alive but allowed to die or whatever. You know, we'll probably yeah. never know the truth. But what's interesting is that. The FBI <clears throat> has declassified about 130, 140 pages of material on Marilyn Monroe, which, which is available on its website. Now, as far as we know, at least, that's all the available still surviving files, whether there were more, you know, like Hoover's secret files that got destroyed after his death. You know, there, may, there probably were more material there. Um, but what's interesting is that the early files on Marilyn Monroe from '55 which relate to when she actually applied for a visa to visit the Soviet Union. And, yeah. of course, that caused a red flag with the official world. And um, a file was opened on her, 
and copies of all the early documents were sent to the CIA. Now, and we can prove that because you can go to the website and the documents are actually on there where they're not just vague distribution lists, but they were literally for the attention of the CIA. And those documents cannot be found in CIA headquarters or archives. Um, and there have been lots of rumours about CIA files on Marilyn Monroe because of her links with the Kennedys. Now, because... The far, some of the files are legitimately missing from the CIA. That sort of begs the question, where have they gone? You know, it's not hearsay. We, we can prove that they were for their attention and sent there, but, but yeah. they're just not available, which is kind of... Or they say they're not available and they don't have them. Well, I actually think they don't have them. I think there's, you find evidence of this time and again where it's almost like, like a shadow group. It can just move in and grab all the stuff it wants, and it's not answerable to anyone. And sometimes... You can see the internal memos where the agency staff themselves are as mystified as we are ah, as okay. to where things have gone. But, the, but that's not the case in the um, that's not the case in the case of the MK Ultra documents, where there's very clear evidence and yeah and uh, documentation that that somebody actually did go in, and we know who it is to burn yeah. thousands and thousands of pages of MK Ultra stuff. Well, yeah, with MK Ultra, I mean, that sort of started in the early 50s, an outgrowth of earlier mind control and mind manipulation and research uh, projects and research into things like um, psychedelics and mood altering drugs and so on. And um, certainly MK Ultra was the most well known and visible one, but, you know, there are actually dozens of sub projects in, in different areas. Um, and in 73, when the sort of the government itself was looking into what had been done with MK Ultra, because most people outside the CIA didn't know anything about it, and even people within, you know, it was sort of limited to a, a certain number of people at that point. At yeah. that point, and when word kind of got out that the media had picked up on it, somebody knew, um, leaked information to the New York Times. Oh, for the Seymour Hersh article. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah. Wow. and. Um, and the CIA kind of got a bit panicked, or certain people who were involved in MK Ultra got panicky, and the director at the time, Richard Helms, ordered as much of the material to be destroyed. And it was held at the... Basically, it was the historical material that went back to the 50s, and it was held at the CIA's archive in Virginia. And all that material was ordered burned, and literally tens of thousands of pages, maybe even more, was destroyed. It wasn't the case that they said, we were, we're going to destroy it, it was hidden. No, it was destroyed. And the man who oversaw the destruction was Sidney Gottlieb, who was heavily involved in MK Ultra and also a weird project <laughs> called... Yes, o sir, I'll burn that stuff. Yeah, and also he's involved in something called Operation Often, which was a study of... Um, that I hadn't heard of. I'd heard of what it was, but mm. I didn't know the name of it. Yeah. And I like the quote. Yeah. yeah, often we... Whatever, something like that. Yeah. You know, yeah. What happens... What's happening down there? Mexican wedding? <laughs> but... Um, I yeah, gotta, so, I'm going to find it because it's a great quote. So a lot of those MK Ultra files were burned, and you know we'll never really know the story. But certainly, I mean, tens of thousands of pages survived as well. You can find them yeah. online at various archives now. So it goes to demonstrate that maybe somewhere there are still other files sort of sitting around that, that haven't surfaced. I'm trying to find the uh, quote from Operation Often. What was that uh, operation? Nick? Oh, it was it was a Operation Often was a late '60s project that went through at least to the early '70s to investigate 
the potential espionage applications of things like black magic. It kind of like similar to the remote viewing pro- programs of using ESP, but it was sort of along the lines of can we use witchcraft or curses, you know, to who was in charge of this crap? Gottlieb. Yeah. It was his idea. Yeah, and it was because he had a deep interest in the paranormal. It was literally the idea, you know, could we get rid of overseas foreign leaders by literally putting a curse on them, you know, and yeah. um, rather than assassinating them like Cuba, you know, with explode, um, Castro with expu- exploding cigars, cigars or whatever. Yeah, or, uh, <laughs> or putting uh, LSD in his uh, beer or something. <laughs> oh, that is cool. Uh, here's the quote, and I would like to find out where you found this quote. Um, the uh, the name of Operation Often was actually de- derived from two of Gottlieb's famous uh, favorite phrases, which, ones which he, which he regularly used in conversation with colleagues in in the intelligence. In, I can't even read intelligence arena, and the quote is: "Often we are very close to our goals when we pull back." And the other quote is: "Often we forget that the only scientific way forward is to learn from the past." Mm-hmm. I think that was from a. A biography that mentioned Gottlieb quite extensively. Oh, okay, but um, by someone named Thomas, but not Ken, from 1988. Yes, um, yeah, I forget. It's it's all listed somewhere there. Though. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, Operation Often. We don't really know too much about it. Well, I mean, we know it went on through the early 70s. It may may have gone on much longer because. I mean, it kind of sounds like a few years ago when I wrote that book, Final Events, and I interviewed Ray Beauchet, this Anglican priest from uh, Lincoln, Nebraska, who was a former MUFON state director for Nebraska. Yeah. He interviewed two, or spoke with and met with two Department of Defense physicists that were working on a program to contact what they called non-human entities. And they, they were the ones who believed it was literally demonic. But that was all to do with sort of using ancient rituals and rites to try and summon these things up, which sounds bizarre, you know, sitting in the Pentagon trying to summon up infernal demons or whatever. Yeah. So it kind of sounds Is almost this like it documented, could... Mr. Redfern? What, the Ray Boucher story? No, the, uh, I'm sorry, the Operation Often. Some often. of it is, but with the, the amount of material we got is extremely small. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's, I mean, it's minute. Uh, to, but it's to the point where you can make a case as to what it was, but just not enough to know the exact scope and everything Right, else. right. <laughs> Which is kind of the point of the book. Well, that's right. Yeah, it demonstrates certain projects are lacking in material when clearly they, they shouldn't be lacking in material. Yeah. Right. The uh, one of the other chapters in there deals with um, with uh, our favorite uh, uh, best friend um, uh, Alistair Crowley, mm. and there, there's some people listening who probably know some of this, but uh, mm. maybe you can elaborate on what he was doing for British intelligence because it's almost certain that he was doing work for them. Yeah. And what I found interesting is I forgot this that he apparently he had interrogated Rudolf Hess when Hess flew to Britain to try and supposedly mm. make a peace. Um, Agreement, possibly, maybe. Yeah, well, I mean, people might find that kind of strange, but, I mean, there are precedents for it and follow-ons. For example, like over here, I mean, Jack Parsons, just down the road in Pasadena. Yeah. You know, he was actually a major disciple of Crowley. You right. know, that ran his um, lodge, basically, out here, you know. Yeah. Um, and the military essentially turned a blind eye because he was a brilliant rocket pioneer. And so there you have a, a perfect case of how someone who's deeply steeped in the occult 
also has a secret life as well within the military or intelligence. And um, there are a number of stories surrounding Crowley. One of the interesting things is that there are references in files um, to, to files held by MI5, which is like the British equivalent of the FBI. And there, we have references to those files, but again, the problem is the files have gone. And the official story is that they were destroyed decades ago. Um, and the story that they were destroyed surfaced after the revelation was made that the files existed. So you can make a case yeah. that, you know, maybe that was just a hasty ploy not to release the files. But, yeah, um, yeah there, there are a number... Why would you not want files released on Crowley being a spy? Because it's, well, it throws the Her Majesty's government into a bad light? Well, I actually think part of it might be that the idea of... I don't think it's necessarily what people care today, but maybe at some point there was a concern people would have cared if it was seen that the government was using occultists to try and fight the war or whatever, yeah. you know. But there are stories about him interviewing Rudolf Hess and other stories. Um, I'm not going to answer the phone right now because we're talking. <laughs> maybe uh, in the second hour. But, you know, there are other stories as well regarding um, the the idea that he may have sort of done undercover work when, you know, he was sort of doing his, par his occult research yeah. and perhaps using that as a cover to travel to one part of the world, you know, under the cover of doing his research when he was there doing a bit of sort of localised spying for, you know, British intelligence or whatever, which makes a lot of sense, really, that you would possibly have somebody like that. You know, there are stories about people in cryptozoology as well who would sort of travel around. Um... <laughs> I said I wasn't going to answer the phone. And I'm not going to answer it this time either. But there are people like in cryptozoology who would travel around the world, you know, and sometimes they would go to sort of areas of the world where fighting was going on and things like this. And been a lot of suspicions that those people may have been sort of, you know, paid under the table to do some localized spying on the uprising in the area. Oh, yeah. the guys of looking for the Yeti or whatever. You know? Yeah, isn't there... The wasn't that in uh, Lauren Coleman's book about Tom Slick and the search yeah. for the Yeti? Yeah, Tom Slick is like a prime example of how you could apply the same situation to Alistair Crowley. Tom Slick um, was this guy from San Antonio, a self-made millionaire, who would go on expeditions looking for the Yeti and all sorts of weird creatures. And because this was at a time when sort of the, the situation being t between Tibet and China was very fraught, and there are a lot of indications that while he was in Tibet, um, he undertook a number of sort of localised spy missions to the CIA. And if he was questioned by the Chinese, he could say, well, I'm just here looking for um, you know, information on the Yeti. And he acted as a good cover. And I think the same thing applies with Crowley. You know, ostensibly, he was there to do his research or to lecture or whatever, but there was something else going on behind the scenes. Wow, somebody's trying to call us. I bet, I bet the building's on fire, and they're trying to tell us that the building's on fire. Oh, well, a good way to go out. Line in use. Well, they're calling so much, they're stepping on their own calls. <laughs> uh, if you want to ask a question, I will... One, we will have questions in the second hour, and two, I will look at the... Um, I will look at the email from, for uh, Radio Mysterious, Greg at Radio Mysterioso to see if um, there are any questions coming through... Just a second. Yes? Hello? Hello? Hey, where are we calling? You're calling Kill Radio over and over and over and over again. Okay, we got, um, we're trying to talk to, um, what's his name? Peggy. Peggy. 
That show ends at 8 o'clock. What was that? The show ends... That show ended 45 minutes ago. Oh, that sucks. I feel stupid now. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Bye. <laughs> Slag. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, yeah, like I said, I will uh, log on to the uh, Greg at Radio Mysterioso.com and, and check that. And I've totally lost where we're at. You were describing uh, Tom Slick and, well, yeah, and Crowley of- and the parallels between them and uh, as using as cover their either magic or Yeti expeditions yeah. or whatever. I mean, Richard Spence um, wrote a really oh, yeah. good book all about Crowley. I mean, that's, that's a great book for me. That's sort of the definitive... Look at you know Crowley's other life, so to speak. I, I recommend everybody read that. It's a great book. Uh, what is the gist of his other life in that book? Not to make you do ads for other people's books. No, but... no, I don't. No, I mean it's the idea that he was sort of actively involved in British intelligence, and that part of his work um, for them was sort of done under the hidden guise of his regular life in the world of the occult. Yeah. But also, I mean, there are stories about him. You know, supposedly, perhaps applying even you know occult techniques to sort of defeating the enemy, that kind of thing. You know, and because um, like Sybil Leake, famous witch, you know, she was supposedly consulted at least by the military in the Second World War about, you know, is is, is this going to be a viable tool against the Nazis? I mean, the Nazis were sort of heavily involved and influenced by occult techniques and history and law, yeah. so. It makes sense that the other side, the Allies, would at least excuse me, would at least look at it as well, you know. Yeah. Well, the, the point, one of the points in the book, which I thought was interesting, was that when Hess came over, um, they figured since they both had a background in occultism, that Crowley would be the best person to kind of get friendly with him and, and speak on whatever in his terms or at least know about something that Hess knew quite a bit about and be able to speak to him like as a as an equal in that way I suppose. Yeah, that, I mean that makes a lot of sense that you know if you're going to And he did have connections to occultism in Germany before the war. Yeah, I think and it makes sense, you know, if you're going to have somebody um to debrief someone or try and find information, you know, kind of like the good cop angle, you know, he he would have been the ideal person. Kind of like you know, we know that certain UFO researchers have been visited by, you know, military personnel. Um, but it's kind of like done from the perspective of sending someone out, kind of like with Benowitz, you know, that they they try to reason with him to start with, yeah. and but use people who he could relate to. Right. In terms of, you know, not being threatened as such to start with, but being... Hey, you know, please, Paul, we want you to stop, and this is why, and this is why you're wrong. Somebody you could relate to, yeah. rather than just some guy picked at random. And I think that was kind of the case, possibly, with Hess. You know, that if you're going to try and debrief someone and do it in a way where you're going to learn something, but hopefully you're going to get them to speak, you've got to get somebody who they feel right. comfortable with, you know. I don't know why this came up in my mind again, but we were talking about Marilyn earlier, and you brought up that Milo Spiriglio document. Mm. And... When you look at it, it's kind of hard to tell if it's fake or not. And you did say the text, if it's fake. Mm. What do you think of it? And well, maybe you should describe what it is. Well, yeah. I it mean, came out with the Timothy Cooper stuff, right? Yeah. The, this particular document, it's become known as like the Milo Spiriglio document. Milo Spiriglio was a guy, he's now dead, but he was a private investigator um, who wrote three books on the death of Marilyn Monroe. And in the 1990s, he was given this particular document 
allegedly a CIA document from 62 dated a couple of days before Marilyn Monroe's death um, talking about wiretaps between her and a man named Howard Rothberg and there's this sort of this sort of long convoluted connection between various people like Rothberg, Marilyn Monroe and Dorothy Kilgallen the journalist and one other person and they're all kind of interlinked where they all you know one knew one one knew the other and so there'll be this chain of information that would get excuse me that would get shared between them all and the gist of it is that Marilyn Monroe supposedly pissed off at how the Kennedys were treating her, was going to go public with this so-called diary of secrets that she had, um, where she was going to blow the whistle on things like plots to invade Cuba, right. uh, relationships and contacts with the Russians, and also something to do with a crash of some sort of strange object and dead bodies, which the implication is that it's a crashed UFO and alien bodies and the president's visit to what was described as like a secret Air Force base. Now... People say, oh, well, it's got to be fake because it's dated a couple of days before Marilyn Monroe's death and it talks about President Kennedy going to see the bodies in the Roswell crash. And so the implication is she was killed before she could release right. the truth about Roswell. And so there's nothing about that. No, no, it actually doesn't. That is the implication. Every, a lot of people... It implies that if you well, are it does. eager... If you're eager, it does imply that. But if you read it, despite what people think... And there's going to be people listening to this now who are going to say Nick's wrong, but it doesn't mention UFOs, flying saucers, or even aliens in that document anywhere. What it says is... Well, that, they wouldn't, dude. Well, I know, but, I mean, the, the community has, has amplified yeah. this to mean it, yeah. it mentions Roswell and dead aliens. What it actually talks about is um, a, crashed, um, a crashed spacecraft, and it talks about dead bodies. Now, that's all it mentions. It doesn't talk about alien bodies, and it doesn't talk about spacecraft for another world. Now, what's interesting is that the, the project heading is Project Moondust. Yeah. And although Project Moondust has UFO links, it's more the term UFO rather than alien spacecraft that the, that the project was involved in. It was mainly revolving around the recovery of Soviet space satellites and capsules and advanced technologies. Yeah. So you could make a really good argument if it's real, that the mention of Project Moondust and crashed spacecraft and dead bodies, it could e quite easily be interpreted as an early Soviet space program yeah. or, or space launch that went wrong and the Americans retrieved it. And now why that's more plausible is because the document says if the story got out, it would embarrass NASA. Yeah. Now, if it was a Soviet craft, it would embarrass NASA, but why would it embarrass NASA... If it was an alien spacecraft, it might... Because they're supposed to know about that stuff, man. Well, I don't think it would embarrass... What it would I know, do, what, it you're, I it know would, what you're getting at. It would embarrass perhaps the government, or it would frighten the government the story got out. But the it's fact not that... embarrass the NASA. Fact, yeah, the fact that there might be a, a crashed UFO at Area 51, I don't see why that would embarrass NASA. But it would embarrass NASA if the document was talking about a successful manned space flight by the Russians that perhaps on re-entry went wrong. Yeah. And, but it would still prove that the Russians got there first, so to speak. So in that sense, even if the documents are hoax, it's sophisticated in the sense that whoever put it together didn't make any mention of aliens or crashed UFOs as such, or alien yeah. spacecraft, but allowed the reader to... Maybe it's deliberately meant to... In, you can interpret it in different ways, but a, a lot of thought went into it. Yeah. You know, so. Yeah, I noticed that there... Uh, did you notice the typo in the in the thing? And it kind of like... It kind of threw me. Yeah. It's it's quoting the last line or the last line of the first paragraph of the Spiriglio document. Kilgallen said that if the story is true, 
It would cause terrible embarrassment for Jack and his plans to have NASA put me on the moon. <laughs> They're going to put Nor- Dorothy Kilgallen on the moon? <laughs> they left the N off. It's men on the moon. Oh, but it says okay. put me on the moon. Look, I never even noticed in the, in, the, in the italics. Oh, uh, yeah? Yeah, put me on the moon. <laughs> well, that's funny. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's an interesting document, and it's one, you know, you could make the argument that it's sort of thrown... You know, just something in the works that's made it even more difficult to understand. But there are genuine... I mean, Kilgallen did know Marilyn Monroe. That's that's not a secret. Yeah. But the, there actually is a really weird convoluted story behind all the different people in there who who were interlinked, like Harold Rothberg and a man named uh, Ron Pataki yeah. and um, Kilgallen and Monroe. And so whoever put it together would have to have known quite a bit to make that kind of look legitimate and whatever. Yeah. So so I mean I don't know if there's if it's real or not. But it's if it isn't real, it's not just a case of somebody banging it out in five minutes. A lot of a lot of thought went yeah, into it. Kinda yeah. like the the MJ twelve stuff, the yeah, original exactly. stuff. And yeah. maybe the later stuff too. Yeah. Like so. the SOM one oh one and all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So. And people listening to that show this show know what that is. Yeah. Nick okay. is possessed by a chicken. <laughs> the chicken god. Uh, somebody likes uh, that you're. Somebody on Facebook likes that you're on Radio Mysterioso right now. Oh, who, who is that very intelligent person? Daniel Malone. Oh, okay. Yes. He likes. He likes that there's a chicken in the studio right now, <laughs> which we're about to sacrifice and cook. Yes. At least we're going to cook it. Uh, we're going to summon up archaic entities with its feathers. Did you did you publish the picture you know of uh, Lom in there? Oh yeah, Crowley's uh, mm-hmm. entity that he called up to, that looks like suspiciously like a uh, uh, alien gray, mm. which has been pointed out for many years. Did you ever hear that thing that Regan Lee wrote about about the picture and how you know it has his little squinty eyes, but if you look up above the eyes, there's all these shading above the eyes, and they look like big alien eyes. Oh. Have you ever noticed? No, I've just kind of focused on the the eyes are kind of hypnotic, I guess. So yeah. you're sort of drawn to them, I guess. They are. But look, look up above the eyes where the normal giant alien eyes would be. Oh yeah, there's right. shading there that looks like giant alien. Yeah, it eyes. does it just, kind of like the teardrop yeah. shape. Yeah. yeah. Oh wow, I didn't realize that. Yeah, yeah. she <laughs> noticed that and wrote something about it yeah. a couple of years ago, which I was like, wow. Yeah. Nobody ever noticed that until yeah. just now. I mean, yeah. just you know, Regan Lee noticed it. Yeah, I, I mean, think, that's, think that's it was his, her. That the story of Lamb, I mean, that's a really interesting one. I mean, and again, it, to me, it demonstrates whatever the phenomenon is. You know, if it's just nuts and bolts aliens, sort of, you know, getting involved in this, that work, the whole working thing, you know, a masculine and so forth, that's not going to bring down nuts and bolts aliens. No. But it's going to open the door to something, and so that's another kind of nail in the coffin. For if it, or if it's extraterrestrial, it's so weirdly extraterrestrial, it goes beyond our sci-fi concepts of what. Yeah, aliens are you know. So, yeah, uh, Nick and I have ridiculously probably parallel thinking on this, probably yeah. more than I have with anybody else. Yeah, um, because we came up through the same BS. I think <laughs> <laughs> we got jaded over time. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, uh, when you say that, I start thinking of many things like. Um, you know, why did he see that? Why was it that particular image? Um, mm. And, uh, you know, it, it predated, you know, by 50 or 60 years, anybody, the, by the Whitley Strieber cover. Of course, he um, was a cat. Yeah, that's right. And <laughs> <laughs> Alistair Crowley was a cat. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> what you know another thing that might have happened was in, under the influence of all those drugs and whatever he was doing and whatever ritual he's involved in whatever mind altering whatever state of mind he was in maybe he what we call remote viewed it or traveled in time or something mm-hmm. like that and latched on to a meme that wasn't going to happen mm-hmm. for many 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 oh, years it's interesting i mean I, not I th- to say that that meme hasn't come from something real quote yeah. unquote but uh. You know, every time somebody says, you know, this this was, you know, why did people see this then? It's like, maybe they traveled in time. Not To, to us, it means traveling in time. Mm. But when you're in that state of mind, the time disappears. Yeah. yeah. And everything exists at once. And mm. things that are relevant to you or th- that are important to you mm-hmm. um, appear before you or, or come mm. into your consciousness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't think, you know, we've got obviously all the answers, but I think we've got some strands of... Even if, we don't understand, even if we don't understand how or why it works, we've got some of the answers as to the way the, the phenomenon kind of interacts with us, you know, and, um, yeah. and under what circumstances. An altered state seems to play a large role. I mean, that's why I don't think it's coincidental that so many abductions occur after people have gone to bed. You know, it's, yeah. it's not, I don't believe they're bad dreams, but I do sometimes wonder if abductions... You know, when you're sleeping, you're in a definitive altered state. Yeah. I sometimes think a lot of abductions, I really do think the person never leaves the bedroom. But I do think something potentially can invade the dream state and provoke like a holographic. Really? Yeah, I do. What's yeah. happening with the with the dirt on them and the scraped tops of shoes and all that stuff? Well, you know, th- that's the other side of it where you've got to deal with that angle but you know i i devil's advocate everything well, there's nothing wrong with being devil's advocate <laughs> because there is that side to you know the sort of um scope well, maybe they and, well you know what maybe it's yeah maybe it's stigmata or they it did it them, stigma, yeah. or maybe they were sleepwalking in yeah. this state i don't know but i do think there is something to the idea that some abductions at least maybe these entities or whatever they are can sort of invade your dream space and create like a holographic events that yeah, seems yeah. 3D and you really do believe you've left you know the bed and you've gone to some sort of craft. Yeah. But I think I do think it's interesting that like with Crowley okay one's on mescaline but the other's a dream state but they yeah. they they both There's an altered the, state. You're in an altered state. And so in other words most abductions occur in an altered state. You can argue as well 4 hours of driving like the Betty and Barney Hill road hypnosis. Yeah, you know that's. I mean, everybody's done this where you've got things on your mind. You're driven to work, and you just realised you got. You know, you have three routes to work. You sometimes take, and you just realise you can't remember how you got there because your mind's so focused on something else. Yeah. But you just drove to work. That's like road hypnosis. I did that going to San Diego for many years when yeah. I was in you know, well, college and afterwards. I don't remember. Dri- I yeah. remember leaving, and I remember getting there. Yeah, well, that's the same thing, and I don't think it's coincidental that. A lot of abduction reports in cars occur late at night after long drives. Yeah. You know, um, Keel reported that sort of that issue of you know a drive taking less time or whatever than, than it should, more time than it should, or vice versa. Yeah. And you know the Betty and Barney Hill thing, just driving back late at night. I mean, not to denigrate the experience, but I right. wonder if the mind, the change in mindset can kind of open a door to let something through. You yeah. Know? That it's not mind generated, but you literally open something. Yeah, either you let it through or. Yeah. yeah, well, that's the other. You know, that's the other question people have, or the argument is, you know, is it a a a kind of died in the wool fundamentalist type skeptic would say, well, yeah. it's all coming from inside their minds. Mm-hmm. 
and then you run into the question of well what you know isn't everything that goes on in your mind in your mind yeah every everything that's coming in your senses is mm. is, is going to be processed by yeah. your sensory apparatus yeah i i think in yeah i mean the mind's a weird thing but i think <laughs> it is um it is open and vulnerable to external things that can manipulate it. And I think the UFO phenomenon is one of them. You know, I really do. Yeah. Um, so. um, because the, the, like the real basic down to earth, everybody want is, you know, what they're really talking about here is what's going on with the UFO thing. Is it external to the witness? Mm. Well, I think it is external but I don't think it's necessarily all nuts and bolts. I think it's something that gets into the mind and it plays around with the memories and thoughts and beliefs and then it pops up based on what's already in the mind. You know, and, and I don't pretend to know why it does it. Maybe it just does it for fun. You know, we're looking for deep, meaningful reasons why. <laughs> Maybe it's like bored on a Sunday night or something, you know. And... Um, I don't know, and I, you know, I'm not going to lie and say I have the answers because I don't. Yeah. But I, I do think time and again, well, I know you can time and again you find cases where people are in a their mind is altered, and then something strange happens that the skeptics might say it's all internal, but I really don't think it is. Why not? Well, because certain archetypes throughout history. You know, it's kind of like somebody today gets abducted by aliens. Well, 500 years ago, people would go into the woods and get disoriented, and then the little people, the wee folk, would turn up, you know, and they'd have missing time. They'd go into the fairy kingdom. They'd come back. Three days has gone by when they think yeah. three hours has gone you by. You have read Fairy Faith in the Celtic Countries, have you not? What's that? Fairy Faith. The Fairy Faith in the oh, Celtic yeah. Countries. That's a great... New Page republished that not long ago. Yes, they did. Yeah. And that's a great book. And I mean, Anybody that, interested in UFO abduction, any UFO entities... Or contactees. Contactees, yeah. read that book. Yeah, that's like a classic example of meeting essentially the same sort of things people report today, but where it's perceived as goblins, gnomes, elves, leprechauns, fairies. Yeah. Yeah. But you've got the missing time angle. The person is often... Transformed, transferred, excuse me, to the fairy kingdom, and if it's a male, they mate with the fairy queen, which is, and you know, it's just kind of like the reproduction angle of abductions. Then also, you've got the whole issue of the hybrid children, and yeah, sometimes, that's in there. Yeah, and what you also have is absolutely mind blowing to me when I read it. Yeah, where for example, the fairies would steal babies and leave like an effigy, a yes. wooden effigy, which is kind of like almost like people are presented with a hybrid baby. You know, yeah. it's not the human baby, it's something yeah. else. So. Yeah. So, in other words, that's why I don't think it's internal, because I think it's like it people back then were seeing goblins and fairies. They weren't seeing black-eyed aliens, but the kind of motif what was, as to what was going on was the same. Yeah. So, I, you, you, I mean, you can make a case that it's all internal, that over 500 years people hadn't really changed that much. But right. I, th I still think there's an external component that, for whatever reason, messes with us. Yeah. You know? uh, well, your answer was because it's been going on for so long. Yeah. Because yeah, if, I think if it was just something relevant to an interest or subconscious belief in aliens, driven out the fact that we're now going into outer space, why yeah. would you have cultural archetypes prior to that? Why? Well, would maybe you... the cultural archetype is the devil's advocate again. Maybe yeah. the cultural archetype is a thing that drives that internal experience without any external input. 
Well, I mean, it could be. But, I mean, again, when you also have situations where it's similar all around the world... And, but, again, you can make the, the argument that, you know, we're all basically the same genetic makeup and people yeah. have sleep paralysis and have always had sleep paralysis. Right. But, again, with sleep paralysis, you know, I'm not convinced that's all just internal. You know, for example, you get people who have... Um, sleep paralysis and they see the so-called hat man like this quasi man in black type figure like a shadowy figure with a fedora yeah. you know why Why is that why don't they just report like the the policeman instead of the yeah. hat man why don't they report the guard standing outside Buckingham Palace with the big black hat yeah. why yeah. is it always the hat man and that's what leads me again to think things like that are have an external component so yeah, well, I agree with you for a slightly different, well, well, it's not even slightly different, a quite different reason, and it was because I thought about it for a long time, and it was my interview with Mario Pozzaglini. Oh, okay, yeah. Mm -hmm. I said, why are you convinced that some of this comes from outside of people's heads mm -hmm. and not just interior? He said, because so many times I've run into people who should not know certain information. There's absolutely zero way for them to know certain information, mm -hmm. and yet they know it. Mm -hmm. And they know the same information as somebody else who's had the same experience, who also had doesn't know that person and has no idea about any of this information. It just comes into them spontaneously. Mm -hmm. Or the, the, the experience with some external thing telling them, or that angel told me this or whatever. It's the same experience or a similar one with an impartation, impartation, information is imparted to them that they have no way of knowing mm -hmm. beforehand, you know, or they're not sophisticated enough. Mm -hmm. And it, it'd be fine if it was just one or two people, but he said it happened all the time. Yeah. Not all the time, but so many times where he just said, look, this mm -hmm. is some, at least some of this is external. Mm -hmm. And I extrapolated that into the UFO thing. At least some of it ex is external. And if at least some of it is external, then the rest of it must be made up by us, mm. to me. Well, yeah, I mean... To I think fill in all the stuff that's too weird or un incomprehensible mm. to, to comprehend, you know, incomprehensible to make any sense of. Yeah, that's, that's the big problem, is that people want it black and white, nuts and bolts aliens coming here to do ABC. Yeah. And it's weirder than that. And I think you're right. that I think there's a genuine phenomenon, but, you know, it's just... It doesn't appear as we expect it. Oh, we excuse me, it appears as we expect yeah. it to, but it does that throughout the centuries for how everybody else expects it to appear. Yeah, but that still doesn't explain what it is. Is it literally extraterrestrial? Is it just some kind of intelligent energy that flits around and you know decides to pick up on that person? Who knows? Yeah, but the problem is, if it was just nuts and bolts aliens coming here and taking people for the DNA. I think we would have solved it. Yeah, there, we there would have, have been the occasional it. mistake. Yeah. And, well, I, and in addition to that, they're extremely stupid because all we need is mm. one DNA sample. Apparently, they need thousands. Yeah, that's right. Why? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I think you know, it's kind of like somebody did a study of how it was possible to sort of you know release a gas into somebody's house and take them away, do a medical procedure on them, you know, and take them back and not really have any knowledge other than maybe a vague headache or. A, bit of a sore pain or something yeah. and not have any memory right you know your brain's just gone for that period right so why is it those entities aren't able to because i think it's 
it's actually not part of the scenario to make us forget it. It's just we vaguely remember like a vaguely re- weird experience. Yeah, yeah, like you remember a dream. And, and yeah. maybe most of the time you don't. Some people remember all yeah, of them, right. whatever. But the interpretation on many people in ufology is the reason why you only remember it in a dream is because somebody or something is trying to make you deliberately forget. I don't think they're trying to make you deliberately forget. I think we forget because of the nature of the transitory semi-real nature of the experience yeah that and it's uh, you know mm. hundreds of times it's said before there's no box for your brain to put it in so no. it just kind of falls off yeah but people interpret it as ah well they wiped your memory so you only remember it in vague dreams but no there's you can look at it from the perspective that it occurred in an altered state so you just don't properly remember it period nothing to do with somebody trying to prevent you from remembering it yeah so. It's like well, saying somebody tried to re- prevent you remembering last night's dreams. Well, no, you forgot it because it was a dream. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, anybody, uh, uh, anybody listening now might think we're saying, well, there's, you know, abductions are not caused by aliens coming from other planets. Well, no, I think what we're saying is that is the reigning paradigm and, and let's, for, for the 50,000th time, try and question it to see if anything else... Holds water. Have you listened to any of the shows where I, you know, where it was like Red Pill was on and we were talking mm. about um, getting rid of UFO, large UFO groups, which I, were hmm. you there when I said, did, gave no. that lecture? Dolan was there. Oh, okay. And he kind of said, that was a pretty good lecture. He seemed kind of like mystified, like, why would you say such a horrible mm. thing? But getting rid of. Getting rid Actually. of MUFON, getting rid of any other large UFO groups, breaking them up and turning them mm. into data collection centers only. Mm. Um, because the thing that and and then have them collect data in different ways. The thing that hasn't been done is taken every UFO report ever given, like like Valet tried to do, throw them all into a database and start massaging data and see what mm-hmm. comes up. And the cool the cool thing that they could do if they if they thought of such a thing um, is to change their questionnaires so that. There's different questions on them. What's your blood type? What dreams have you been having? Mm. Follow up six months later. Has your life changed? Mm. Um, what is your you know background? Have you ever been in a mental institution? Um, you know what age? You know are your parents still alive? Just all kinds mm. of questions like this. And I bet some weird ass repeating definite patterns would emerge mm. because of that. And not because everybody made it up or it's an illusion or anything like that. It's because. Mm. It would be an interesting way to go at the problem from our perspective, which is about the only way you can do it, by the makeup of the person and how it affected somebody's outlook, their life, their what specifically happened to them at the time. What were you thinking? Uh-huh. You know, they don't ask people that. They say, "How big was it? What size was uh-huh. it? You know, what, what? You know, how fast did it get here? How high was it above the horizon? What colors? Who cares?" Uh-huh. Well, yeah, I think the problem with the UFO sub, the, the UFO community isn't the fact that research is done or investigations are done, but it's done whether deliberately or subconsciously or, or otherwise. The the nature of the investigations really reflects more on the scenarios and beliefs of the researcher. Or yeah, the, the expectations. Yeah. yeah, the expectation. The belief and system. And I think yeah. if we kind of just collected material and tried to make some sense of just what the witnesses say, you know, and keep belief systems and trends out of it. But the problem is then 
kind of the UFO scene falls apart because there's no unified picture of what's going on. You know, they come from this dying planet. They need our blood or whatever. They yeah. need our DNA, and they've crashed and all yeah. this. And maybe that has gone on, but if it yeah. hasn't, then we it's kind of like seeing not seeing the trees for the yeah. for the, the forest for the trees yeah. because you're looking at the subject, you're looking at the case and every aspect of it, but you're asking all the wrong questions that yeah. might explain it. And yeah. and so in that sense, yeah, kind of deconstructing ufology to create a new totally unbiased ufology yeah. would actually be a good thing not even but, call it ufology call it something don't call it anything but yeah the first thing you're saying you know it has to conform to that yeah. paradigm or the belief system it's like really truly screw the paradigm and the belief yeah. system because that's yeah that you're gonna see what you expect to see mm-hmm. and there's nothing much else you see hey my uh, sister-in-law courtney wrote um she said i'd never heard of fedora man but i knew what nick was talking about because um, she she says she had had some kind of experience with mm-hmm. it, or, or remembers an experience with it, yeah, as, well, that, as a dream. Yeah, well, that's interesting because you know that that she would report that, but didn't report a sighting of a guy with a large top hat, you know, yeah. or, or a wizard's yeah. hat. You know what I mean? Why? That's why I think there's something external because the same phenomena appears for people of all sorts of different backgrounds, you know, and. Um, and there is sort of like a quasi-MIB tie-in with the shadow people and the hat man. I don't care what people say. There is. There's like a linkage there somewhere. I mean, even Bender's men in black weren't... According to Bender, you know, if you believe the story, they, they sort of materialised in his room with these glowing eyes, and they were shadowy. Yeah. They weren't, you know, guys in suits knocking on the door. They sort of walked through the walls, you know. It was like more H.P. Lovecraft than it was Mulder and <laughs> Scully. Yeah. <laughs> Well, there, there was not a... He was creating that paradigm or whatever it is mm. as it was happening to him. Yeah. Well, partially, because there was there was some precedent for it. Well, that's the thing. I mean, I think it's really interesting that he probably was visited by the FBI or somebody, and he got the fear of God put in him. He may have stumbled onto something, and his group did get really big, you know, so he probably was watched. This was 52, 53, yeah. you know, and the Robertson panel was recommending that all these groups get watched. And I think he probably got really paranoid that he was being watched, and maybe the pheno- the real phenomenon got its grips to it, into him and manifested in the worst way possible for him by getting into his nightmares and appearing as almost like demonic versions of the visitations he actually got from the official world, you know, yeah. and um, kind of turned into his worst nightmare. So. Yeah, that reminds me in the in the um, Nobody's Eyes Only book. There's a uh, you talk about Orfeo Angelucci having, being met by some people from space and given that pill to take, and yeah. he didn't even think twice about doing it, and then he started... I don't remember what happened after that. You said he started babbling to somebody. Well, about what happened was he met this guy... He was contacted by this guy who claimed to have had... Orfeo Angelucci was basically contacting the 50s for people who don't know. Um, yeah, thank you. Didn't he, or didn't he have, like, a preponderance for sheep or something like that? <laughs> what? Don't, don't you remember that story about Angela where, um, oh God, Mosley told the story about um, Angelucci at a conference where somebody says, tell the, the sheep story or something. And, you know, they would go out and screw sheep or something at night. And But Ange- Angelucci said, but I always made sure mine were female, you know. So. <laughs> you don't know that story. No, I don't know that story. <laughs> How did I miss that one? Nick knows all the good stories. Oh, yeah. But, um, 
Anyway, that's beside the point. But <laughs> well, maybe I don't know. But um, <laughs> anyway, Angelucci had all these kind of. Actually, if you read the Wentz book about you know the the, the fairy culture. Um, oh yeah, same things. Yeah, yeah with um, Angelucci stories, the in California that often would occur under bridges, and there'd be like these glowing balls of light, which would then change into like angelic looking figures, which is a lot of fairy stories like that as well. Um, and Angelucci, you're a fairy. <laughs> no, you're a fairy. <laughs> <laughs> Can't. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> Um, Angelucci said he was contacted one day by this guy named John, I think it was, who said he'd had similar experiences and could they meet. And they met at, um, was it 20 Pines somewhere? 29 Palms? 29 Palms at a diner. And the guy, they met there, and this guy basically said he didn't have long to live and he wanted to share his story and wanted to know if Angelucci could share his story to get a a greater understanding before he died. And... The guy said to Angelucci, before you tell me, you've got to swallow this pill. And bafflingly, Angelucci swallowed the pill. Yes. And within about 15 or 20 minutes... But this is according to his own story. Well, this is according to his own story. But after about 15 or 20 minutes, he started to feel weird and spaced out. And he said that the... uh, There was a little... I think it was a drink container or something on the table turned into like a little woman dancing on like a spinning thing. And he felt totally spaced out. And he started to babble. CIA stash, man. Yeah, well, yeah. He started to babble constantly, nonstop, about his story. And he said all the time there were two guys in military fatigue sat at the next table just staring at him constantly as if they were monitoring Yeah, the well, there's a huge Marine base out there. There's military people around 29 Palms all the time. Okay. It's called the 29 Palms Marine Base. Okay. Well, <laughs> so the, and the interesting thing is, though, this is the whole time frame. They probably of, thought, that guy's high. <laughs> well, but if you look at it from the perspective of the time frame with MK Ultra yeah. testing psychedelics and trying to get people to talk, here's Angelucci um, babbling about his story. This guy, this mysterious character, says, "I want you to tell your story." Pops him a pill. Yeah. Angelucci's babbling. There are two military guys cozy right next to him, listening to the whole thing. You could make a play that it's like an early MK Ultra thing. Yes. Um, and on top of that. Um, John, if I think it was John, but I mean, after he, he vanished, he, Angelucci never heard from him again. Now, what's interesting is that in one of his books, Angelucci talks about how at one point he was contacted by what he described as a mysterious group that wanted him to put a communist spin on what the Space Brothers were doing. Yeah. Now, that being the case, if there was concerns on people in the official world that maybe the Russians were, were trying to target the contactees to spread communism, yeah. that would be the ideal reason why Angelucci may have been targeted for some sort of MK Ultra thing to get him to spill his guts and find out who this mysterious group he referenced in his book was yeah. that wanted him. He actually talks about how they wanted him to, quote, spin it to the party line. Yes. And that, that's what he says. And, yeah. and that. To me, when you look at all those fragments together, I actually think he, he was subjected to some sort of inter- mind-altering interrogation, you know. And it was done in a closed environment where the guy was there, the, the military were there in case I needed to step in if things went wrong. Mm. Yeah, it's, that sounds yeah. plausible as well. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Well, and it's also conveniently next to the military base because uh, yeah. guys could just go back yeah. and debrief each other or whatever the hell yeah. they're going to do. Yeah, you'll have to look that story up about the sheep, but... Uh, yeah. <laughs> I will. There's a um, uh, Beckley just put out a book which I showed you, and I, I wanted you to. It is here. Yes, 
there's it's what's it called? It's it's the basically a Mosley. UFO secrets of James W. Mosley, a special tribute to the editor of Saucer Smear and the court jester of ufology. Yeah. And uh, you know what Sigrid called him? The Hunter S. Thompson of ufology. <laughs> That's a good one to call yeah. him, yeah. And then it was credited to me. It's like, Greg Bishop called it's like, no, Sigrid actually said that. Because mm. she met Jim, and she sort of, you know, she had she had met him a couple of times. Jim was like the Hunter S. Thompson of ufology. Yeah. He outlived Hunter S. Thompson. Yeah, and he didn't, he didn't <laughs> actually he didn't shoot he didn't, himself. He didn't shoot himself. <laughs> but I was sent that book because I was, uh, I was talking to Nick, and I have been for years, about this silly Wilbur Wilkinson and Carl Hunrath story, which is absolutely fascinating. Yeah, it is fascinating. And I want to found, find out more about it because it happened in L.A., in Gardena, mm-hmm. in 19... What's the date? 50, 53. 53. Hey, right near the Angelucci. Mm-hmm. Um, they did apparently go out to Arizona and sit in on seances with uh, George Hunt Williamson. Oh, that's right. Um, but what happened was these... And we'll get into it, uh, this article that was in the book... Um, when I mentioned this uh, on Facebook, I think uh, uh, Tim Beckley, who I think has recently had some serious surgery. Yeah, he is, is, he's is, all right now. Though. And he's, he's all right, yeah. Mm-hmm. Is, has recovered. He said, he said, you don't have to look for that. It's in the Mosley book. And he sent me a copy of it very, very kindly. Um, and Mosley had done a little bit of research into this story where these two guys said that they had been contacted by aliens, that they were in some sort of radio contact with them. Um, and I thought they had moved in together and like were staying in an apartment. No, according to this, that uh, was it Hunrath that was married with the kids? Yeah, Hunra- um, Hunrath and Wilkinson were both from uh, Wisconsin. Yeah, and Nick can continue this. He knows a lot better uh, facts. But you've got to write the book, though. It's, yes, uh, but Hunrath, Hunrath and Wilkinson were both from Wisconsin. And in the early 50s, like 50, early 52, or let's, no, excuse me, late 51, early 51, um, Hunrath, Carl Hunrath, got interested in UFOs. And Hunrath was actually a really brilliant um, skill, like electrician and technician. And he developed um, a lot of sort of new gizmos for a company called the Racine Company, I think it was called. And um, that was his main job. But he moved to Los Angeles in like 52 and actually quickly... With became, his family. Yeah, became... Uh, no, um, Hunrath, I think, was single. Oh, okay. But so apparently Wilkinson. Hunrath had a big, a deep hatred for women for some reason. He was like a violent, you know, slap-around type and whatever. And um, But Hunrath, as soon as he moved to Los Angeles, he integrated himself with all the players in ufology. What the person he knew most of all and hung out with was actually Frank Scully. And he spent really? a lot of okay. time with Scully. Huh. Um, but he also spent a lot of time with George Adamski out at Palomar. And um, on, on one occasion, um, Hunrath told Adamski that he was in touch with aliens, that, that Hunrath was in touch with aliens. And they had told him how to create this device that, bizarrely, he gave a name called Bosco, B-O-S-C-O, and he referred to it as if it was a living thing. You know, Bosco can do this. Bosco <laughs> can bring aircraft down from the skies. That was the idea. It could, like, um, destroy the engines of aircraft or, or cut them out or whatever, and they would just fall from the sky. And this is actually in the FBI's file on, on Adamski. Hunrath's name is blacked out, but it's clearly him because it yeah. says the FBI actually went out to interview Adamski about the fact that, hey, you know, you've been saying you've got this device that can bring aircraft down from the sky. And like, no, I haven't. No, it is not me. My, not my silly Polish accent, you know. <laughs> 
But um, no, Ray Stanford uh, has a great Adamski impersonation. Does he really? Yes. Uh, but uh, I think I mean I think Adamski likes to call, used to call Hunrath like Unrat or something like that. Unrat. <laughs> It is. He told the FBI, like, it is Unrat, it is not I. You know. But anyway, um, Adamski was interviewed by the FBI, and they put the fear of God in him because they Mr. wanted... Mr. Straith will tell you what, how, <laughs> what kind of person I am. Because uh, what happened was that the FBI got word that Adamski had created this device to bring aircraft down, and he immediately basically rolled over and said, no, it's Hunrath. And from <laughs> then on... The FBI kept close watch on Hunrath, so it'd be worth trying to get his FBI file. But the, what happened was then that Hunrath was kind of like um, Dr. Frankenstein to Wilkinson's Igor. And he said, you've got to move down here. And, like, Wilkinson just, okay. You know, so brought his entire family. Yes, master. Yeah, that's what it was like. Brought his family to Los Angeles, and the, all of them lived here. And, um, they, like you said, they spent a lot of time with George Hunt Williamson um, right. trying to contact aliens out in Arizona using Ouija boards and all sorts of ways. Um, and they claimed at some point after that, this was like in mid to late 53, that they were in regular contact with aliens who wanted to meet them. And then in early December... By 53- radio telegraphy. Exactly. exactly. Then in December 53, they took to the skies from Gardena Airport... Never to be seen again. Yes. Now, what's, what's how the int- hell did they rent an airplane? Did one of them have a pilot's license? Uh, I'm not really sure about that. It wouldn't surprise me if maybe Hunrath didn't, because he really was like a really he's like a like a, like a mad scientist type yeah. almost. Now, there's actually several really interesting threads, which again would make it a great book. First, bear in mind that he claimed to have developed this device or been given the technology to bring down aircraft. Well. Um, Hunrath lived in Racine, um, Wisconsin. Wisconsin, which was like 75 miles from where you had the Kinross aircraft slash UFO disappearance yeah. just two weeks after the their dis- after Hunrath and Wilkinson disappeared. Airplane came down somewhere. Airplane came, and on the same day, from the same base, another aircraft of the same type also came down. A lot of people don't realize there were two crashes. Well, there was actually one crash, and in the other case... The plane just vanished. Out. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, the Kinross plane has never been found. Mm. In the first one, which was like on the morning of that night, the plane crashed and the two guys were killed and they, the bodies of the plane was hauled out of a local lake. Um, on top of that, um, they, one person who, re- who met Hunrath, you know the cartoonist, R. Crumb? Yeah. Yeah, he met them. He met, what? Yeah, he met Hunrath. He can tell some interesting stories about Hunrath. Damn it, now I'm going to have to... Uh, how yeah. did you find this out? Uh, I forget now, but it, it's, it's a legitimate story. He, he's gone on record himself. Um, and there's also um, a story about how Hunrath was somehow, bafflingly, I'm not sure how, but he actually hooked up with some of the people who were on the Robertson panel before the Robertson panel, before knowledge of who was on the Robertson panel became public. And he, he from somewhere, he, he learned... Hunrath learned of the membership of the Robertson panel. Yeah. Um, so there's like a really great story. Lots of, you know, you've got the FBI, you've got yeah. missing aircraft, crashed aircraft, Robertson panel, you know, the, the two guys, all the weird writing on the wall in Hunrath and Wilkinson's dens, you know, that yeah. ties in with the, the alien writing angle that, you know, that you're yeah. interested in. Yeah, they, the, the, uh, yeah. The, there is a news article... From the Los Angeles Daily Mirror, mm-hmm. reproduced in that uh, Mosley book. 
don't which know. says that Los Angeles sheriffs took a very dim view of the entire controversy. Yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, I mean, one, one of the other interesting... These people are just nuts and they stole an airplane. I yeah, mean, exactly. That's, a, that's all they really cared about. Exactly. But, I mean, there's also um, another interesting aspect to the sort of the whole... Um, issue of you know what was going on who was doing what and and where and when and why this whole thing kind of kicked off and some people might say this is a stretch but like five years later um you know if you take maybe if you if you take the view that what if they were really Honroth was contact but what if it was like some sort of psyop thing you know and and why was he given the name bosco well just five years later I don't know if you know the story that Rich Reynolds tells of how the Villas Boas case was possibly like a psyop created by the CIA. I using remember drugs. reading yeah. about that. Well, the guy who told him the story was a man named Bosco Nedelkovic. <laughs> and Bosco Nedelkovic was a legit... I mean, he was plugged in with the CIA and all sorts of people. Yeah. And he said it was like um, almost like an MK Ultra thing to try and see how far people's minds can be manipulated. Yeah. And they used like um, an oriental hooker. As the, you know, the so-called alien woman. Um, well, it's kind of like if he was involved with that and his name's Bosco, you know, you've got a, another Bosco tie-in with the UFO subject in the 50s, which is, which, again, is like a bizarre angle, which is probably worth looking into at least, you know what I mean? So there's a lot of strange things like that where I think there's an amazing story to be told. I mean, yeah. being right here in Los Angeles, you know, in the or Los Angeles, as they say here. Yes. But not Los Angeles. But, that's how, um, that's how uh, people from Britain say it. <laughs> Los Angeles. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so I think... L-E-E-S, or E-S-E, as you're speaking a language. E-E- I'm speaking Los Angeles. It's E-E-E-Z. Yes. Los Angeles. That's it. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I think there's a... Sounds you know, like a drug. Living here, it you is. can sort of go around the places. I mean, the streets... We know where they lived. We know yeah. the roads. Um, we know which newspapers the articles were published in. Because yeah. And because um, Hunrath is mentioned in the Adamski file, then you should have no problem really getting hold of the Hunrath file. Yeah. So there's, you know, there's so much here that kind of ties in. I mean, you've already got the Williamson file. Yeah. You know, so. Um, Steph wrote in. Um, I hope she doesn't mind me reading this. Just like I hope my uh, sister-in-law doesn't mind me mentioning her on the show. Oh, she said no, not a problem. Um, Steph said, if you read uh, if you read Dion Fortune's fiction, fiction, especially Moon Magic and the Sea Sea Priestess, she very clearly states that the type of magical worth she work she and Crowley, with whom she had a friendly correspondence toward the ends of his life, was working on were, were expressly intended to contact certain energies or archetypes which are not yet getting much of a toehold in the material world, and and mass of human consciousness, oh, and work with these energies, archetypes, in order to give them full, full expression in the material world or consensus consciousness. So I'd be very surprised if Crowley, quote, saw what was happening in the future, unquote. As to me, I would see his purpose as uh, being trying to help create and give expression to particular, ar- particular archetypes. It may seem to be a slight distinction, but to me it's not. So I see it's the difference between passively seeing what is going on versus doing what you can to force something in particular to happen. Hmm. But maybe yeah. what you're forcing to happen is a vision of... Well, the other part of this time travel or um, uh, remote viewing, any psychic stuff um, tends to have more validity, be stronger, 
when there is a personal connection or relevance to the person experiencing it. Mm. Yeah, no, I think that's true. I would agree with you on that. I think that, that that's totally right. I mean, you know, I, th- I think, I mean, like with that email you just, Stephanie, did you say? Yeah. You? Yeah, I mean, Stephanie's email, this, it all kind of, you know, we, we've got imagery, we've got theories, and they're all kind of dovetail somewhere. Yeah. We're on the right path. It's just a matter of putting the pieces together and fully understanding it. But, I mean, it all comes down to that it's not what, you know, the UFO journals tell us it is. It's... We, yeah. we get in there, but we just it's, we just it's, not got the yeah. full picture yet. Yeah, it's 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 the it's the super spectrum of John Geel, yeah, except exactly. in a different way. I mean, we're looking at yeah. one part of the spectrum, yeah. which has just been republished by uh, Anomalous Books. Uh, what UFOs in the super spectrum? Yeah. Yeah. UFOs in the super spectrum, brought to you by Anomalous Books. <laughs> <laughs> Earthlings. I don't think I've ever read that book. It's a good book. Is it, was it published under another title? Uh, it was published. No, well, I don't think it had much of a circulation before, but I mean, it's it's kind of like Keel's most left field book because it's all about the whole idea of, you know, sort of intelligent energies Patrick, and archetypes. Patrick, why haven't you said be a copy? <laughs> yeah, tell him. But it's kind of like you know, like sort of archetypes and spectrums and energies and dimensions just beyond ours, and it uses that scenario to try and explain certain cases where somebody will have a visionary experience of yeah. a religious nature. Somebody will see a Bigfoot, somebody will see whatever. I don't think I've ever read that one. Yeah, it's a good one. I mean, it's I'm, very I'm science- frightened that I've never read that it's one. It's actually written very difficult. There's no sort of Mothman-type, you know, it was a dark and stormy night type stuff. No, it's just theorizing. It's theorizing. It's very scientific and technical. Yeah, I mean, I've seen, yeah. you see bits of that, because I, I swear I've read it, but the thing is, mm. I've heard him... I remember him talking about it in other books. Mm. Yeah, it was... I'm not sure... Well, I'm not... I don't know whether it was... I mean, I, I haven't read it before, I should say. Yeah. No, uh, so... Uh, but I think it was published before. Yeah. But to what extent... No, it was... It, it was I, I believe it was published. Yeah. Because, you know, Trojan Horse was published under a couple of different titles. Yeah. And what was the other one that was... Uh, there were two or three different books he wrote that mm. were published under a few different titles. Like they come in another, you know... Mothman Prophecies was... What was it called? In England, uh, there's a, I've got a version of it called Visitors from Space. Huh. I mean, it's got like Mothman on the front, but it's Visitors like big... from Time and Space, is it called? Yeah, and yeah. It, something like And it's got like a muscular... Black... It's a Frank Frazetta cover. Yeah, but it's got like these little tiny wings, you know, that couldn't keep anything aloft. <laughs> <laughs> but it's still a cool co- cover. But I mean, but that's a very different type of writing from Keel. I mean, you know, actually for me, my, my favorite book of his is actually Jadu. I think that's a really good book. It is a good book, and it's, if you're a fan of John Keel, yeah. it's a really great book. Yeah. Because all the things he talks about are kind of, in a weird way, embryonic in that book. Yeah, that's kind of, and it's also like, it's like, I, I, it's kind of like the X-Files meets a rum diary. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's sort of like a road trip, and he gets into all the stuff, about, like the breakup with his girlfriend, yeah. his German girlfriend, which... That's sort of unheard of in all of other Keel's book, and it's almost like gut wrenching reading that stuff. Yeah, yeah. And then there's somebody I think published online pictures of him with what was her name? Started with a K. I forget what her name was. Kim or Catherine or I can't remember. Anyway, but he there's pictures of great book. Yeah, Uh, it's kind of like you know people ask me for Keel. I think that's a great book. I actually don't 
Maybe I that. actually prefer Grey Barker's book on Mothman yes. to Keel's book, yeah, Silver The Bridge. Silver Bridge. Because I prefer it immensely more. And the thing is, if I hadn't read Keel's book first, uh, I wouldn't prefer it more. Yeah. Well, I think the thing is, I mean, I know Grey Barker used to take, you know, he's like a definitively gonzo type writer where, yeah, yeah. you know, the, a normal hot sunny day becomes the proverbial dark and stormy night, you yeah. know, and he took liberties. But if you ask me, in terms of capturing the sort of unsettling imagery of what was going on in Point Pleasant back then. Yeah. He kind of really does a far better job, I think, than Keel. In yeah. terms of in terms well, of instilling the menace that was going on yeah. and the atmosphere of just weirdness, you know. Uh, that and giving people an idea of what people in that part of West Virginia are like. Yeah. It's very... I know these people and this is what they're mm -hmm. like. I mean, you don't get that feeling from Keel. Keel's an outsider that came yeah. in. Yeah, and while his book, while I'm making excuses for it, his book is probably you know it is it's a landmark book in oh, you know, in, in, right. in mm -hmm. uh, anomalies mm -hmm. uh, writing. The um, you read uh, Barker's book and it's like I went down this little dirt road to this tiny little house mm -hmm. where these people were living with dirt floors with like eight children. And it's mm -hmm. like. This is so typical in West Virginia, and mm -hmm. I talked to them about what was going on, what they'd seen, and it's like, Keel doesn't talk about any of that stuff. No, no. It's he just... talks about meeting with Mary Heyer from the paper. Yeah, yeah. You know, and maybe a few people are, are talking about um, uh, Woody Derenberg or something yeah. like that. But when I read Barker's thing, it's like you're sitting there in yeah. West Virginia at that time with oh. those people, and it's a lot more atmospheric oh, it is. It's of that very, time yeah. in that place. It's very much sort of underappreciated, but because... He's got this Is there kind a of riot red... outside. <laughs> he's got like kind a... of sounds like it. But, uh... He's kind of got this reputation. Let's hang the microphone as a liar, window. but he wasn't. He was somebody who gonzoed things up, and Who? used real. Barker. Yeah, the it funny kind of, thing is Akil was the same way. Well, yeah, but I think Barker did it more. Yes, or yes visibly more. Where he would gonzo things up and, you know, exaggerate and probably lie now and again. Yeah. But he did it in a way to get the truth across, but in an entertaining fashion, which probably yeah. also allowed room for some of his thoughts and ideas to creep in. But he still told the story of what happened. But people, a lot of people don't understand the concept of, like, gonzo journalism. You know, it's kind of like Hunter S. Thompson defined it. But, I mean, if you look back at Jack Kerouac's books, yeah. you know, I mean, they're written in novelised form, you know, but they're, they're based on, you know, on reality, but their but their change and names are changed in certain scenarios and conversations are clearly recreated and certain people turn up in different books under different character names. You know yeah. they don't keep the same character names um, throughout the book. So in that sense, unless you understand the style that Barker used, people discard his work. But I think I think the Silver Bridge is one of the most kind of underrated books of the forty and. Well, yeah. then it shouldn't be. It's a, yeah. it's a great book. And it's just not its not a hipster thing to say, nobody knows about this because it's so cool. <laughs> it's just that it never had the chance, until no, it was republished, right. yeah. it never really had the chance. I never saw it yeah. until it was republished. I saw one copy of it, and that's when my friend Peter bought it out from under me. <laughs> well, he didn't buy it. I saw it at a UFO convention. Yeah. I was like, do I want to spend 60-something dollars uh -huh. on a book? I don't know. And then Peter walks to my table later and says, look what I got. <laughs> I want it. Well, you can get it on Amazon. I think it's like $100, and I yeah. think it's on A-Books as well. So yeah. you can get copies, but it's like you've got to pay three figures for it now. Yeah. Yeah.
So yeah, there's a few books like that. I'm still looking for. Um, I'll save the money up and get it one day, probably. But uh, Go Rightly says, I think Nick is talking about the Eighth Tower. Is that what it was originally called? Was uh, yeah, Mister Smarty Pants Go Rightly. It was. Uh, <laughs> we could look it up here online, but we're talking. Uh, was uh, super UFOs in the super spectrum? Or was it called the Eighth Tower? I don't think so. Maybe. Uh. Well, I'm, I'm going on what Patrick, what anomalous books have put it out. Yeah. As you know, so, um, or is it called the? No, it is called the Eighth Tower. Is it? Okay. Yeah, it's called the Eighth Tower. Something, some of the super spectrum. Yeah, that's right. It is. I'm sorry. Ad, yeah, Adam's right. Then it, I it guess is. I guess I have read it because I have that book. Oh, okay. Well, I don't have because I, I remember reading on. about. Yeah, he's got that. He's got. He's has a. You know, yeah. it's very technical. I remember an image of. The visible light spectrum, yeah, or the electromagnetic spectrum, yeah. and how little of it we can actually see. Uh-huh. And it, the thing about moving from infrared to the yeah. to the visible and ultraviolet to uh-huh. the visible and back and forth, and uh-huh. how heat is uh, experienced, and you know, uh-huh. infrared is heat, and you know, he goes, he gets very technical uh-huh. about it. And now that that is actually compelling. my mistake. Yeah, it yeah. was. Uh, it is the eighth tower. Yeah. So uh, Adam Gorelli is back day. up on top of the of the heap again. It's, it's been a long day. Yeah. <laughs> Talking with UFO people, mm-hmm. I I I think I might have bad mouthed UFO organizations and maybe meetings so much that apart from the fact that I haven't written anything in a while, it's part of the part of the reason I don't get invited to talk at anything anymore. Um, although Red Pill said, "Why? How come you're not uh, speaking at Micah's conference?" I said, "Well, one because I haven't written anything in a while, and two because Micah never asked me." Mm. You you spoke at his conference, yeah, right? The Paradigm one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's it, a good was conference. it in Minnesota? Um, yeah, Minneapolis. Yeah. Yeah. But um, I mean, yeah, it's a good conference because they get a lot of different um, different subjects covered, you know, and they they go out of the way not to be predictable. Which yeah. is good, you know. Yeah. Nothing worse than just getting jaded and predictable and just churning stuff out because you mean they don't have Linda Howe and George Norrie there? Why not? <laughs> but uh, I think it's act for me. It's one of the you know leading conferences in actually presenting alternative theories and scenarios that actually have merit to them. You know, yeah. and um, you come away kind of yeah, something with that, interesting with that, with that viewpoint. You know? Yeah. I think I'm kind of thinking I want to close the window. Tell me to shut it. I guess it's not it's not a fight. It's just people partying. Yeah, people. It's just, yeah, just Sunday night, I guess. We'll leave it. Shut up! <laughs> <laughs> can't. <laughs> no, they, they can't even hear me. They're all they're all high. Um. No, no, I was saying you should do you, you should do like my 25 years of hanging around in the kind of like Mosley's shockingly close to the truth. I think you probably have more stories than I do. What's the what's the strangest like person you've ever met? Like a I guess a fan or somebody that wouldn't leave you what, anything. I'll just throw it open. What is the weirdest thing that's happened to you oh, interpersonally God. like, you know, with another researcher who you don't have to name or um Wow, put me on the this, spot. There's now. thousands of them. <laughs> um, I've got to be honest. I mean, most people who come up to me at conferences, you know, they just just want to chat or whatever. But I mean, you know, you always find the occasional one who, you know, sort of crosses the line and is a bit. You know, when they talk to you, they're sort of like four inches away from your nose. You know what I mean? 
it's sort of imagine if that's me and they're like you know they're talking to you like that you know sort they're of doing what do that again well they're kind of people occasionally you have somebody come up to you you know they want to ask you a question and they're like that <laughs> yeah they're like an inch from your face yeah yeah and, and then, you back up and they just keep coming towards you yeah and then like they'll, they'll see you like 10 minutes later you're talking to somebody else and they'll just come walking over and just stand there and listen you know it's, yeah a guy at work there's a guy at work that that talks to you whether you want to be talked to or not and yeah. one of my other one of one of the other guys i work with calls, calls it being talk raped <laughs> Get but, off me. I don't want to hear it. No, no, please don't. And, I, and what about, do you want to hear about my mortgage and what I'm doing on <laughs> my house? No. no. <laughs> but yeah, I think, you know, we've all, I'd have to think carefully. I mean, because I've been so many weird things over the years, but I mean. Okay. How about a weird thing that happened to you? Like I have that story about the, you know, the, uh, uh, the guy that called me up in a funny accent and kept saying his name was, was. <laughs> What was Kasava it? Nosunda, or something like that, was it? Um, no, he had a very strange, badly staged Middle Eastern sounding accent and said his name was. Um, Not Kasava Nosunda. No, where'd no. you get that name from? Well, that was maybe the, one of the names I heard somebody used to use. <laughs> <laughs> it was a. Uh, oh, he said his name was James Edward. Oh, okay. What did he say? Oh, My, I remember. You know Rick Doty. Yeah, you know, you know Rick, Robert Collins. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You know Jacques Vallée. You know Gene Huff. He mentioned yeah. Gene Huff. You'll give me phone number. You'll yeah, give me you... phone number now. Yeah. Because <laughs> I'm not going to give you the phone number. One, because I don't know those people very well. And two, even if I did, it's not your my right to give their numbers to you. No, you'll give me number. Yeah. You're Bishop. You'll give me numbers. <laughs> <laughs> how'd you get my I said, how'd you get my number? It. Uh, I found it in Phobar. He's like, no, you didn't. It's unlisted. <laughs> then he changed the subject. So thereafter, every time I wrote a story and excluded middle that I didn't want my name associated with the one of the aliases I used was Edward James. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, what, kind of along those lines. Um, back in December 1996, um, me and a friend of mine, Irene Boss, used to run. Irene used to run the Staffordshire UFO group. Staffordshire being the county in England yeah. I grew up in. And there's always been rumours of, of a UFO crash in 1964 in an area of woodland in Staffordshire called the Cannock Chase, a large area of forest. Oh yeah. And. Um, we interviewed this elderly guy one day, um, said, Irene did a, was profiled just after she set her group up by the local newspaper. And, you know, so they wanted to have like a, a, like a side column on local cases. And so she told them about this crash story. And Irene got a, a letter in the mail to her house because her address and phone number went in the article who said he was present at the site of the crash and he saw this small delta-shaped thing loaded onto the back of like a low-boy lorry-type thing. Truck, I should say, not a lorry. You know what a lorry is. A lorry. Or a torch. <laughs> a torch, that's right. Or the bonnet or the boot. Yes. <laughs> and um, It's in the boot. It's in the boot. In a you boot wanker. Where? It's in the boot, you wanker. <laughs> <laughs> and um, anyway, uh, this guy said that he was present at the site and would we want to go over and speak to him? Well, yeah, of course. So um, me and Irene no. went over one morning, like got there about 11 o'clock. We'd spoke to him on the phone about nine from my place. Yeah. So Irene lived in another town. She came over to me and then we went, drove over together. And when we got there, he was quite, this like two hours later, he's quite reticent to talk. And he claimed to have received a phone call from the Ministry of Defence not to talk with us. And, you know, everybody's heard stories like that. 
But in Britain, you have what's called the 1471 system, where you dial 1471 and it'll give you the, no, the number of the last incoming call. Yeah. And now, if the number's blocked, you're not going to get the number. It's still going to be blocked. Yeah. But it actually was an operator, a military operator service in the Midlands part of England where we lived. And when we called, we were able to trace the call back to the, not just from You there. called from his phone? Yeah, we called yeah. back. And Irene called because she had like a... Um, like a portable mini um, recorder, you know, you, you plug it into the back of the excuse, onto the back of the phone, yeah, and then record the conversation. Yeah. And Thank you. What she and what happened was that it went through to something like an operator service, and they were able to transfer the call back to where it originally came from. So, in other words, it was like a security thing where you had the operator service would be responsible for directing internal calls outside, but you wouldn't have the internal number. Yeah. But they transferred Irene to the original, the originating source. It was the Ministry of Defence Guard Service at a place called Whittington Army Barracks in Staffordshire, and they wouldn't talk about it at all as to... <laughs> why the call had occurred. And that was really weird because... It so the guy wasn't lying about it. He no, he wasn't. was called by somebody from... He was, and he was like 75. He's a retired washing machine repairer. <laughs> and all he was to, wanting to talk about was... A, that sounds so British. Well, <laughs> a retired washing machine repairman. <laughs> well, this was like 1996. Well, I'll tell you exactly when it was. December 96. And this occurred in 64. So that was 32 years later. You know, and he lived in a little tiny apartment on his own. He was a bachelor. He was about 70. Yeah. And he was scared stiff. And that was, like, really weird because it wasn't just hearsay. We could prove either two hours between us speaking to him on the phone from my place and getting to his place, he got this call. And he eventually opened up, but he really didn't want to. And that was sort of really one of the strangest experiences where I could actually prove Mm -hmm. something like that had gone on. Now... And I have to think about that because it was, you know, a, a real example of somebody seemed to have been listening in, you know. Yeah. Because so, yeah. we'd phoned him to make a range, say, is it yeah. okay if we come in in a couple of hours? Yeah. So, yeah. They've probably been following it or something. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe they maybe it was a uh, NSA type thing where yeah. certain keywords are just, well, let's go yeah. take a look at this. Yeah. So that, that was sort of a, one of the strangest. Yeah. 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 But I think everybody in ufology now and again get something. I mean, I'll tell you another one. Um, When I, just before I moved to the US, which was in the summer of 2001, I'd been doing a lot of research into... You hadn't moved to the US when I first met you? No, I met you in 98 at Laughlin. No, I didn't move till 2001. Yeah, but I've been been over before lecture. Yeah, yeah. But in 2001, this was literally when I was going over, moving there. And when I was at Heathrow Airport flying out, and... um, I, you know, I was waiting in the line um, to check baggage and whatever, and I was sort of pulling my suitcase. One of the wheels had broke on it, so I was, like, having to k- struggle to carry it along, and it was, like, full with a bunch of stuff I was taking over. And yeah. this old guy came up to me uh, behind me with, like, a, like a little dolly-type thing and said, do you want to put it on there? I said, sure, yeah. And he was, like, a really cultured old school, you know, university-educated guy, silver hair suit, yeah. 70-ish. And he said, oh, where are you going? I said, I'm going to Dallas. I'm emigrating, you know. And um, he's like, oh, yeah, Dallas, you know, Kennedy assassination. He said, he said, you know, you shouldn't really believe all those conspiracy theories. And then he just wandered off. And then when I was in the departure lounge um, waiting, 
He was actually in the, like the next one. If mine was like 8B, he was like 8C or something. Yeah. And he was just like sat up, up, just staring at me from about 80 feet away. <laughs> His eyes just... Bo- and he was kind of like one of these, like... You think of these old MI5, Oxford University spy types. Yeah. And that's how he really came across. And he, when he said that to me, he said, oh, you know, you shouldn't believe those conspiracy theories. He was just like, you know, his eyes were just boring into me. You know, kind of like the cigarette smoking, or the well-manicured man or whatever he was yeah, called, yeah. of the X-Files. It yeah. kind of reminded me of that. And I've had a lot of strange... Actually, a, weird, a few weird things at airports. Yeah. You know, and it's where you kind of think, wow, this, you actually are being... Yes. Watched, you know. I mean, I, I mean, I don't mind that because, I mean, I'm not somebody who sort of gets into, like, 9-11 or weapons of mass destruction and war in Iraq. I'm not, yeah. you know, I, I just do UFO stuff but because that's what interests me. I'm not interested in, you know, writing a book on Edward Snowden or whatever. You yeah. know, it's not... I'm, I don't want to go down that pathway, all that political stuff. Yeah. But, um, but it does show, I think, and it's not paranoia that... A, Sometimes weird stuff has happened where I think we are watched. Yeah. You know, kind of like that stuff with you and Carla Turner and the envelopes and, yeah. you know. It also happened with even worse with uh, Peter Jordan, the cattle mutilation mm. guy from Jersey. Yeah, well, that's another, you know, another issue, cattle mutilations. I mean. Yeah, well, Chris's book's going to come out pretty soon. I, I've read the whole thing. Oh, have you? Yes. Oh, cool. Because I, I begged him to let me write some uh, an intro for it. That's all I do anymore is write intros for things, <laughs> um, at least lately. Uh, and there's some mind-blowingly cool stuff in there, mm. meaning like pay, oh, yeah, attention, I mean, pay attention to this crap because nobody else does, yeah. and it's really important in the cattle mutilation. Well, Ken, uh, excuse me. Uh, Chris. <coughs> excuse me. Chris did a lecture on the book at the Paradigm Conference in October, you know, and, and all the stuff he was talking about, you know, with CJD, Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease, yeah. mad cow, emerging viruses and worse yeah. things than mad cow and yeah. the rise in Alzheimer's in the U.S. that might not be Alzheimer's. You know, he right. got into some really dark and sort of bleak, yeah. disturbing areas, you know. Yeah. So, you know, when I suggested that book, a book like that to Patrick years ago, he said, um, I don't think anybody wants to read that. Well, that's weird because Patrick was involved in the um, Brain Trust book, uh, Colin Kelleher's book. Oh, that's right. Because yeah, that was published by Paraview. Well, it's probably because he might have thought somebody could have written, done the story better than me, which oh, he okay. might be right. Mm. Uh, certainly Chris did. Well, I think Chris's will become the definitive book because it's not biased. It's not a skeptical look, but it's not just saying, "Oh, it's just aliens yeah, stealing body parts." Or yeah, whatever. that's the point. I'm, one of the points I made in the, in the intro was oh, okay. that mm-hmm. Chris doesn't really care what the an- well, he cares what the answer is, but he's not stuck on an answer, yeah. even if it's nothing, yeah. even if it's I don't know. Yeah. He doesn't care if the answer is I don't know. He'll just keep looking and mm-hmm. thinking. And that, that's, that's valuable because you never get a book like that. No. Or, right. or hardly ever where you get a book where it's like somebody is like, this is what, you know, yeah. because when you when you came out with um, Body Snatchers in the Desert, of course, people are saying, Nick thinks that that's what this is. Well, I didn't even write it from that perspective. I wrote it as yeah, but that's, this is what your I was name told. is associated with the book because you wrote it, obviously. And then people think because that's the subject of the book, that is your final definitive answer. It's like. Yeah, I mean, no, no it, it's you're presenting data that you were given on a particular scenario and you put it out in the way it was told to you and to try and figure out if there's anything to it. And is it going to bring in more data? Yes, you know, exactly. it wasn't it wasn't denying the UFO scenario. It was pointing out this is what these elderly people said and what they told me. Is it the truth? 
Yeah. Or is it a disinformation thing? Or is it some weird private grudge, you know, against <laughs> somebody or other? Yeah. You know, I mean, and even to this day, I'll admit, I don't know. And pe- the problem is, a lot of people who read UFO books, they don't want to hear, I'm not sure. They yeah. want, and it, you know, but I can't say I believe this or I believe that if I don't have proof. I'm not going to lie and say it's a definitive proof. I'm going to say this is what this suggests. Yeah. Or I don't know, but I'm going to put the information out to see if we can take it further. But pe- for some reason, people don't want that. They want you to tell them, yes, aliens are here to steal our DNA. Or yes, yes. cattle mutilation is done by aliens. And I, I don't really understand why that is proper. I don't understand why people. Because people aren't are satisfied cats. by having a book that's speculative. Yeah. And not because it's, we're too lazy to do the research. It's speculative because we honestly don't have the answers. Yeah. You know, so we have yeah. to. We don't, but the, the people like answers. People want surety. People want, and I hate to say it because my dad always says this, you know, that people want people to feel, think for them. Because then they well, don't, people don't, a lot of people don't like ambiguity. It's just, it's kind of uncomfortable. Well, that's tough shit. <laughs> uh, Bob's uh, at the show is not in today again. He's I think he's taking an extended hiatus. Um, we can talk for a little bit more since we didn't start talking till like twenty minutes after. Mm-hmm. Uh, when do you have to wake up? Like mid uh, uh, noon tomorrow? Oh God! I mean, my flight isn't till seven o'clock tomorrow night. Oh yeah, they've got me hanging around all day. Yeah. Oh, f- because Flaming that's when I get hell. off of work. I get yes. I go from eleven to seven. Ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Um, if we can possibly get up at a decent hour, I, would, I still want to go over and scare Bender. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I mean, as long as do I, you want to at least see us? Because we went and saw Benowitz's grave, and that was we fun. saw Benowitz's grave. We went to Devil's Gate last time, the yeah. Balloon House, yeah, um, the Blade Runner Hotel, yeah, Bradbury yeah. Building, yeah. Um, what was the look at? Here's some more questions I wrote about the uh, uh, for nobody's eyes only book. Buck, buck, buck. What was the difference between the FBI site before and after migrating docs to the vault? Are they still available somewhere? You have to explain that. Oh, well, I mean, I, I, yeah, this is just note to myself about. Um, oh, the okay. FBI, FOIA site that's online now and the difference between what they used to have online. Yeah, I mean, the, the FBI's got this really great site called The Vault. I mean, yeah. I mean, a lot of people paint the government as bad guys. They're, I mean, the FBI, I have to give it to them. They've done a really good sort of stand-up job of putting all their declassified, or, you know, a lot of their declassified files... You must be a agent. <laughs> on, ...online, and it's called The Vault. And you can download... Not the Black Vault. No, not the Black vault. vault, just the Vault. And you can download, I mean, probably millions of pages on hundreds and hundreds of subjects, like celebrities, L. Ron Russian Hubbard's spies, in there. L. Ron Hubbard. Well, actually, that's, that's, I don't think that one's on the site. Really? Because yeah, I, I thought so. I'd seen it. Maybe, oh, it, was it, the may, maybe it is then, but I, I, don't, I didn't think it was. But yeah. anyway, you know, it's everything from the gangster era, like Bonnie and Clyde, German spies in the Second World War, Russian spies... Um, they got any Manhattan Project Russian spy stuff? Oh yeah, there's like the um, what, probably you, Klaus, Klaus Fuchs is in yeah, there. All, yeah, all that the kind. Yeah, Rosenberg's. The Rosenberg's, that. all that sort of stuff, and um, and there's like a paranormal section as well, which has got their 1,700-page UFO file. It's got their M, uh, Majestic 12 file, um, cattle mutilations, ESP. Cattle mutilation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're not a <laughs> Um, cattle mutilations, ESP, 
and a few other things. Now, they, they all used to be on the FBI's main site, and then they were transferred over to the vault. But rather yeah. weirdly, some of the files that were on the original one, some paranormal ones, didn't make it to the new site. Yeah. Some, one of them being the FBI file on Philip Corso, who wrote The Day After Roswell. There's also um, a file on a woman named Mary Hardy Reeser, who was alleged victim of spontaneous combustion in the 50s. <laughs> that file's like 150 pages long, and that didn't make the transfer. The Wilhelm Reich file, which is like 800 pages, that didn't make the transfer. I remember seeing that one, so I must have seen the old site. Yeah, well, the Nikola Tesla file didn't make the transfer. What is going on, Nick? So, you know, it's what was their excuse? Well, I mean, it, it's not so much an excuse. The well, it isn't. I don't think it is an What's excuse. What's their reasoning? The reason is that they removed from the site files which, over time, were less and less clicked on and were perceived as being of less interest to the general public. So you know, they if, don't have unlimited server of. Uh, no, I don't think space. I, it wasn't really. They're the government. I don't even they think borrow it was, some of that NSA space over there in Utah. <laughs> I don't even think it was perceived as like that. It was if. The, if the general interest, you know, if there aren't many clicks on that particular file, over time it was removed. Yeah. But, you know, but, but I would make that point, that the fact that Can there are so them? many files on there, it wouldn't really hurt just to put the Wilhelm Reich file back on there. Yeah. You know, it's not going to take up, you know, however, whatever, a significant percentage of the yeah. sites. But I do find it kind of interesting that things like the, the Tesla file you know, the Reich file, which would be of interest to people in the UFO field, or yeah. the Corso file even, right. that they've gone, you know. And um, I mean, some people have put, like, a conspiracy spin on it that it's being yeah. done to, you know, to s prevent people from reading. I, I actually don't think that is the case, but I understand why yeah. some people are making a conspiracy yeah. view. I think it probably is because they they weed stuff out. But it's just a shame that... If that's the case, that it's a shame that interest is dropping in things like what Reich or whatever. You know, yeah, so. I, I had a problem with something you written about Reich. About what that I wrote in that book. Uh, there's a section of the book about Reich, which is cool, very interesting, and some stuff I didn't know. I think, um, of course, you know what? The first thing you do when you get a book from somebody you know is you go in the back and see. If your name is... <laughs> Are you in there? Yeah, yeah under the Reich thing. Uh-oh, let me see. What did I, what, how did I outrageously slander Gregory? You didn't slander me at all. What the, thing, what the thing was is that you said that when Reich... And this is an argument I had for quite a while with Ken Thomas, which was never uh, actually resolved because neither of us are convincing the other, um, about him riding, driving through Roswell... On the way to Arizona, mm. when they drove from Maine to Arizona with a with a cloudbuster, I think like attached, like towed <laughs> behind them, <laughs> like a tank. Yeah, uh, out to Arizona to you know try and make rain in the to desert. Do battle. Yes, <laughs> he finally had the idea that deadly orgone, which is what he said caused deserts, was was caused at least partially by UFOs. Mm -hmm. And. You know, Ken's thing was Reich, Reich was talking about UFOs in New Mexico before anybody else was when he went through in 1950, whatever it was, uh, a few years after the thing. It was like mm. anytime he went through a desert, he said that didn't matter where it was. Well, and it was probably the first desert he'd really been to on his drive. I actually mm. traced where his drive was on a map. Mm. 
The first desert he got to was New Mexico, southern well, New Mexico. Yeah, I mean, no, that, that's actually a fair point. But I still, I do find it interesting that, you know, he said that there was a high concentration of as he approached DOR, Roswell. yeah. You know, that, I mean, you can interpret it in different ways and we'll yeah. never really know the truth. But, I mean, it is kind of interesting yeah, that... Well, well the, Go ahead. <laughs> that he made that sort yeah. of connection with Roswell when really Roswell had been forgotten about, you know, for the yeah. most part. So. Yeah, well, the, the Ken's point was see, he was talking about UFOs and Roswell. No, like, well, yeah. All he said mean, was yeah. that there was a concentration of deadly yeah. organs. Well, that's his code for there's UFOs there. It's like, no, <laughs> it isn't. It's his code for that there's there's mm. something that's causing desertification of, of, of certain areas of the planet. Yeah, it's like whether you make the leap. Even from one thing or to the I, other, you, you know. know, deserts are probably caused by other things besides deadly orgone. Yeah. Although deadly, whatever he calls deadly orgone, if it does, it did exist, has probably more to do with what the desert causes than mm. what causes the desert. Mm. Um, but, but it's yeah. still an interesting angle, you know, that yeah. somebody like Reich would have a, a link with Roswell somewhere. Yeah. And if I remember so I correctly, I first read the book I was reading. I was like, he went through Roswell. Yeah. That's kind of cool. Yeah. I think somewhere as well in the Ros- in the Reich file, there's a reference to where. Some woman found him up, like, in the middle of the night, claiming to be Marilyn Monroe, which, like, he's, like, really weird and wanted to ask him all sorts of questions. Yeah. What? 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 Huh? In the Reich file, there's something about somewhere about... He claimed he was Marilyn Monroe? No, he, he claimed they'd got a, a phone call from a woman yeah. who claimed she was Marilyn Monroe oh, I see. and wanted to ask him a bunch of questions and stuff. No. And, um, I'm not sure what the full story is behind that, but it's kind of like a weird yeah. sort of sub... Aspect of I it wish I well. was around to ask Wilhelm Reich questions. He yeah. died. When did he die? Fifty-seven was it? Or something yeah, a like few that? years. Yeah. Not not a lot of years before we were born. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. Uh, unlike Raphael Angelucci, who I missed by a month. What? When he died? You mean? Yeah, oh, I, okay. I I found his address in Glendale, mm-hmm. and then I found out he died the month before I finally found out where he was last living. Huh. Uh, yeah, he was quite old when he died as well. When yeah, he like yeah, 80s, I, some, 80s yeah. mid-80s. Yeah. I, in the 80s is when I missed everybody. I missed Gray oh. Barker by a, mm, two months, I oh. think. I know Truman Bathroom died like a week before the first moon landing or something. Like oh, that. really? <laughs> and then Dan Fry was uh, sometime in the late 90s, early 2000s. Mm. I know because I think it was Dan Fry. Poor Dan Fry on um, Farewell Good Brothers. Yeah, <laughs> he's talking, and then he starts like whistling, whistling the Star yeah. Spangled Banner, and then yeah. he goes back to talking. Well, he was—I think he like Alzheimer's. He was kind yeah. of like cruel that he was like, yeah, put on the show. You know what I mean? But, yeah. Um, well, at least you got to see him before he died. Yeah, that's true. I think that was Dan Fryer. Maybe it was um, somebody that lived out in Yucca Valley or in the desert in the late '90s when he died, and his entire. Library and all his papers were just sitting out on his driveway in a garage sale. Dan Fry, I think it was Fry. Oh, okay. And somebody, who's the guy that ran for president? Gabe. Um, Gabe Green. Gabe Maybe Green. It was, great. it was Gabe Green. That's oh, okay. who it was mm-hmm. that had died out there, and some his family just put his stuff out on the on the driveway, and they had a garage Shit. sale. Wow. And some people. Some book dealer came by and scooped up a I'm lot sure. of it. <laughs> I bet they did. Yeah. Stage bru- sagebrush, sagebrush, sagebrush press out there in Yucca Valley. Mm. It's all gone now. Um, and I went out there about two or three months after he died, mm-hmm. wondering, you know. And I just in the bookstore, I was like, "What are all these Dan? Fr- I mean, what are all these Gabe Green books doing here?" Mm. Oh, we went out and he told me the story. They were just selling the stuff. Mm. Where's all his papers? Oh, somebody else got that. Where? <laughs> wow. 
And then he's, I came, I got one book off him. He wanted like a hundred bucks for it. I bought it. Huh. It's a Son of the Sun. Oh yeah. And it says to Gabe Green from Orfeo Angelucci in it. I showed you that, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's yeah. in your bookcase. Right? So he said that somebody from Harvard had come out and bought all the Dan Fry, I mean, the, all the Gabe Green library huh. books and papers. That some of the papers, I guess he had some papers. Wow. And it was. I said, "What do you mean?" For he said it was from one of their archives or library or something. It's like, well, at least it's an archive somewhere. Did I ever photocopy for you that somebody sent me once a bunch of letters from Dan Fry um, that they found in like a car boot sale, car trunk sale or something? No. Yeah, there's. I mean, there's nothing mind blowing. There's like about I'll copy them for there's like fifteen letters with the envelopes where people had contacted him, written to him, and said, "I really like your book," and he wrote back, "Thank you very much." But there's a couple of interesting ones in there. Oh wow! And then I mean, they've got some cool old stamps on there with flying saucers. <coughs> excuse me, flying saucers on and all sorts. Uh, yeah, like stamps from, with flying saucers. Yeah, from the fifties. Yeah. There were stamps with flying saucers yeah. on. Yeah, the, I've got the original envelopes, and they're like, oh shit, yeah, you know, like old blue. You know, the old blue style yeah, envelopes yeah. and whatever. Yeah. You know, yeah. You know what should be done with those is they should be blown up huge and made posters. Yeah, well, maybe. I'll scan them or something and send along to you. In the 90s at some point, the pe- <coughs> people we used to go on the kookouts with, um, one of them, Dave Reimer, uh, who worked for Apple for a while. I think he still does. Um, and got me hooked on chewing tobacco, actually, <laughs> uh, when I was. I, I got off that habit a few years ago. but um, It's not good for your gums. No. Um Cool guy, great guy, Dave. But he he one time sent a bunch of letters out to a, b- a bunch of us and the you know, um, go rightly and um, cool. Somebody's throwing stuff at the window. Is that what it was? Yeah, they're going to try and throw it through this open part here in a second. Yeah, but something. Dave, in the, sometime in the mid '90s, sent us all letters. And he put stamps on him, but the stamp was an alien head, and it said, Love, USA, 25 cents, or whatever it was. <laughs> and they got delivered to us. <laughs> <laughs> that shows how much notice they take of the stamp. <laughs> I've got a Bigfoot, um, I mean, a Yeti stamp somewhere. It's kind of cool An actual one. real Yeti stamp? Yeah. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah, like a commemorative thing. Uh, from, from the United States? Uh, no, no, I forget where it's from. No, Nepal? it's like Chinese. It might, yeah, it might be like a Chinese yarn or something like that. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yes, Bigfoot ours now. Yeah, I don't collect stamps or nothing as tragic as that, but uh, <laughs> but I've got a few. You know, that I've found different places like like the Dan Fry ones. There's some cool ones on there. You know, I can't uh, believe there's UFO stamps. Yeah, I'll I'll make copies. I don't believe you. There's only about twenty. There's probably about twenty letters and twenty envelopes. And it was a woman who, about five years ago, sent them to me, and she'd found them in, like, um, like I said, like a car trunk sale or a garage sale or whatever. Yeah. Garage. Not garage. The, the garage. Garage, as garage. In, as in garage land. But, um, yeah, they're, they're kind of cool stamps. Maybe they're worth something. I'll have to look it up. I could trade them in for a copy of the Silver Bridge or something. You know. Yeah, possibly. <laughs> So there's there's some interesting stuff there, but I kind of like all that sort of old memorabilia because you actually get a good insight. I kind of did I ever show you or make copies for you of the uh, Otis T car? Um, yes, you plans. did. That's right. The, yeah, I got hold of his the old saucer diagrams that he made for these plans to send a UFO to the moon or whatever. And, yeah, and he was going to get Wayne um, Aho involved or Aho, yeah. wherever he is. And, yes. um, well, I think he's dead now. Yeah, he is. He died about. He, Wayne was. I actually met Wayne um, 
At I the, did too. The first time I went to the UFO Congress, and he, he almost got into a fist fight with uh, Bob Short. <laughs> and, um, yeah. They were like, that had to be pulled apart, and Bob was like, <laughs> Remember Bob Short yelling, arguing with his wife? <laughs> yes. At the Surely. retro UFO conference, yeah, yeah. while somebody they were upstairs doing meditation, and they were downstairs like, <laughs> "Shut up, woman! <laughs> you shut up!" <laughs> and they told him to shut up, and, they, and I think they yelled up. They both yelled up. That you know, they both yelled upstairs. <laughs> we don't have to shut up, right? You shut up. We don't have to shut up. <laughs> have you read his book? Which one? His UFO book. Contact from something or other. That's Contact. a really good book. Deals with all his when he first met. Um, he must have written that Van in the last Tassel. ten years. Yeah, it is. It's not a new, it's not an old book. It's a new one. Yeah, and it no, talks about all it. his. Oh, okay, it's all about his meetings with Van Tassel and hanging out at below Giant Rock and parties and all. And it's it's a cool book. It sort of talks about his own experiences and his first encounter. Mm. Yeah, see, it's a good book. Because uh, Barbara Harris, our friend out there in Yucca Valley, wrote uh, has written. And talked about a lot of things uh, associated with Giant Rock in the early days mm -hmm. and things I didn't know. Oh, we what's his name? Kritzer or whatever his name was. Yeah, Frank Kreitzer. Kreitzer. But yeah, Bob Short's book, it's a good book. It's, um, yeah, sort of harks right back to the early days. But it was kind of funny to see him and Wayne Arho almost at, um, at blows. <laughs> what were they fighting about? Oh, I didn't know. I mean, it was in one of the main... They were six foot four. No, they were six foot two. <laughs> but, <laughs> but they were in the main room. And all I can Orthon remember... Orthon cannot beat up uh, 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 Ashtar. Yes, I he can. All I can remember, the main thing I remember, <laughs> is that one of them kicked a chair at the other one. <laughs> and his wife intervened or something. Then, like, somebody else came running over, you know, and tried to part them all. And I think it may be... Uh, what, uh, what was the name... Oh, what was the lady? Uh, RTO or somebody like that, wasn't it? Alucci, Alucci uh, yeah. Francesca. Alucci, yeah, that's right, Alucci Francesca. She was there, and I think she intervened as well. So, uh, <laughs> and, uh, it was kind of an entertaining little struggle. And that was the same time when um, Guy yeah. Kirkwood was on stage with Bob Short and um, Wayne, and they unfurled this huge flag, and Ken yes. helped hold it up. And yes, I've, I've seen the picture of that, and Ken's talked about yeah, it. Yeah, I've, I've got a photograph where they're up there, and they're all, like, smiling at the camera, and Wayne just looks baffled. He's like... I <laughs> 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 don't really know what's going on, I think. <laughs> oh, Barbara was... Uh, she has um, stories about Frank Kreitzer, and she said everything everybody keeps writing about him is wrong. He wasn't a hermit. Mm. Um, the FBI—they weren't coming out to, you know, arrest him for being a spy. They, the local sheriffs came out to try to say that he had to sign up for the selective service. Oh, okay. And he wouldn't do it. Mm -hmm. He wouldn't come out. And he finally he went underneath the rock, and they threw a tear gas bomb in, and it set off the dynamite. And it blew, oh, okay. he didn't kill himself; it blew him up. Mm. Now I remember Van Tassel said something about how. When he would go down there, years there was later, still there was blood, blood, on blood the walls. splattered across the walls. Well, the bomb was so... I mean, the dynamite had detonated so powerfully that actual shards of bone were embedded in one of the deputies when they were... Was that true? Yeah. Wow. It was in the police report. Wow. So, also, apparently, in some point in the near future, we're going to go out and check out the Orthon landing site. Oh, that would be Near cool. Desert Center. Uh -huh. So I'm going to take Williamson's book out that has pictures of all the hills around there and mm. see if I can match them with the terrain. Oh, okay. That would be cool. And find out, you know, where Orthon's footprints mm -hmm. were. Maybe they're <laughs> still there. Yeah. Yeah, of course. 
Hawthorne. Yeah, no, that was a wanker. There's people down down there yelling at you. What the hell's going on? What goes on down there? I've never had this happen during the show where a bunch of people start yakking outside the window. Maybe it's groupies. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> they followed us from yeah. the uh, Conscious Life Well, then they're Nick's groupies. <laughs> I've never had any groupies at all, ever. <laughs> As a, you know, contrary to what uh, the sage on UFO Mystic used to say. <laughs> the sage? I've forgotten about the sage. That guy was a dick. Yeah. What happened to him? <laughs> I don't know. Oh. The funny thing was, like, every once in a while, he'd be very candid. He's like, well, uh, I have a problem. I'm extremely obese. I was like, why would you even mention that? Huh. He got very, like, he said he that mentioned. No, he, yeah, on the on the site. He actually got, gave gave details of his personal life in his comments. Huh. Yeah, because he was almost came across as, like, really mysterious, you know what I mean? And just would yeah. never sort of. Well, the thing is, after about a year of, like, going back and forth with him to the point where. He'd make a point every once in a while. He'd say, mm. you know what? That's actually very interesting, and I think you might be right, and you've mm. changed my thinking on it. Mm. And then, you know, 8,000 examples of <laughs> you're being an obstinate idiot. You know that? <laughs> um, finally, after it, after a while, I stopped answering his mm-hmm. post at all. I did not react to anything he ever said. And after about a month, he stopped. Mm. Whatever happened to Jamie Shandra? Uh, I don't know where he is now, but up to maybe 10 years ago, he was living in L.A. still. Oh, okay. Cause he he vanished. Divo- Didn't he vanish when he supposedly had some... He was shown some evidence of something or other, like a book or something? No. No, he, he, said, he already told me that it happened, and then uh, it was December of 97 or 96, and I'd been... T- Bill gave me his number. He said, I talked to Jamie. Maybe you have stuff to talk about. Hmm. And we did. We talked for hours over months. And I would call him like once every month or two, and we'd talk about more stuff, you know, what happened. And finally, I said, hey, Jamie, do you think there's aliens here? And he said, yes. Well, why do you think that, Jamie? If you, te- if you guess, I'll tell you you're right. Uh-huh. So there began a series of, you know, two or three months of, were you, you know, did you see a document? Well, that proves nothing. Uh-huh. Did you shake hands with an alien? No. Did you see a dead body? No. And I never got it. Uh-huh. And then he said... I said, do you want to, you know, will you, oh, because Excluded Middle was still going. I said, you know, can we do an interview? He said, yeah, I'm going to the East Coast and I'll be back in January at the end of December or something like that. And we'll do the interview then. Huh. So I ca- I didn't hear from him like in the beginning of January. So I waited a week or so and then I called his number. And the number was that had a phone message from somebody who wasn't Jamie Chandra who said, I don't know if you if anybody's calling for this guy, Jamie Shander or something. Um, he's not at this number anymore, and I don't know what I don't know how to get in touch with him. Huh. That was a message on the machine. It's like they reassigned his number very quickly. Usually, huh. it would take like a couple yeah, of months right. of yeah. you know uh-huh. refer you to the new number. Uh-huh. It was immediately reassigned, like within a couple of weeks or wow. at least you know less than a month to this woman who just said uh-huh. who just had a message. Uh-huh. Even if it was that woman's number, I don't know. Uh-huh. Just saying he's not here. I don't know who you're talking huh. about, and I don't know where he is. Uh-huh. And then about a year later. Um, uh, a f- I think it was a friend of Sherry Starks or Vicky Cooper's um, said that I was m- I was at a oh I was at the UFO conference at the at the Beverly Garland that night when I interviewed Jim Mosley. Remember I had him oh, on yeah. the show. Yeah. He was at the Beverly Garland for the National UFO Conference, uh-huh. which was there that year. And I met a I listened to Travis Walton lecture. And after he was after the lecture, I was talking to this woman. She goes, "Oh, I I met Jamie Shandra." I said, "What? Where?" Huh. She said, "My kid was having a, a was in a 
like a private school and they were having like a, a concert or you know everybody in the arts program at that school would like you know come up like guitar or do a you know mm-hmm. be in a scene from something or whatever their talent was and she said Jamie Chandray was there because his either his son or the, the son of his like the girl he was going out with at the time was there I think it was oh. his son playing guitar or something and she talked to him oh well and I never followed up on it because I'm an idiot and um she said he was still living in L.A. Bill doesn't know where he is. Huh. I asked him, you know, up to about a year ago, and he said he didn't know what happened to Jamie, so. Wow, that's wild. But, okay, now we've been over two hours. Um, but the the upshot of it was that uh, I, I never figured out what he'd seen. Then I figured out maybe it was that that uh, yellow book crystal oh, yeah. thing. The holographic book yes. or something yeah. like that where... Where images it, of Jesus would pop up. Yeah, or the you know, history of the planet or something yeah. like that. I don't know. Maybe that's what he saw. Yeah. Because it's at that point, like in the 90s or early 90s, how could you think that you could look into a crystal and see the you know the mm. history of the world in it or mm-hmm. whatever, whenever you thought of it? Mm-hmm. Just something that was just so absolutely mind-blowingly not something that yeah. you think that humans could make. Yeah. I think it was an, I think it was some sort of artifact, mm-hmm. a functioning artifact that he was shown. Huh. That's what I think. I mean, that's the only thing I didn't guess. Because he said no to everything. Like I said, you know, living alien, a dead one, uh, a ship, uh, Mm -hmm. you know. Do you see something flying around on command? All these things. Nope, 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 nope. Mm -hmm. Our guest has been Nick Redford, even though I've been talking for the last (laughs) ten minutes. Sorry. (laughs) Okay. And since I've been drinking beer here, I want want to play uh, I Don't Like Beer because it's a good song. I don't like beer. Yeah. Who's that by? Um, uh, Unit 3 and Venus. Oh, okay. <laughs> it, was a, it was like a new wavy punk band from the mid, early to mid-80s, and their lead singer was a seven-year-old girl. <laughs> um, Sigrid told me about this. She goes, you've never heard of I Don't Like Beer? It's a good song. Yeah. I, w- w- we can keep talking. Will I approve? You will approve. Listen. Yeah, good. All the lyrics. I don't like beer, and beer isn't good for you. Oh, okay. That that almost like pretty vacant. Na, 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 na. Yeah. You listen that riff. Yeah. She likes being there. I looked online, and there was a video of her in her 20s or 30s, I think in her 30s, and she was performing. (laughs) And she said, I still don't like beer. What's the band called again? Unit 3 and Venus. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs>
Yes, I don't like beer. Beer isn't good for you. Beer, beer, beer. I don't like beer. Beer isn't good for you. Do you have a request, which I might have possibly have some? And, uh, and well, I don't have any Dropkick Murphys. Sorry. I've got the Exploited T-shirt on. Do you have any? Have you got Barmy no. Army by the Exploited? No, but I can. I could probably call it up on uh, YouTube. All right, Barmy Army. B A R M Y. Oh, that's that's very Army. British. It begins E X P L O. You'll find it. That's the Exploited's best song, Barmy Army, without doubt. It's an excellent song. Exploit Barmy Army, don't try to miss! Hey! This reminds me of a, uh, I think it's a fear song. Oh my god, this is six minutes long. <laughs> that is a that is a long punk song. <laughs> that is a long punk song. It's almost blasphemous. It's a, it's a punk punk song. It's blasphemous. It's a concept song. <laughs> so Nick, you gotta leave tomorrow, right? Yeah. At seven, though. Yeah, I got. I'm not actually. That's nine o'clock my time in Dallas. I actually arrive midnight tomorrow night in Dallas. <laughs> Do you know what this is? You know in a second. On the first first word of the song. Wow. Oh. <laughs> I quite like this. Oh yeah? There is a great uh, YouTube channel called I think something like Forgotten Glam Rock or something. I think the sweet very good band. Yeah. The Blockbuster or a Bora Blitz, that's a song. Yeah. They're kind of like an English New York doll, but not quite as glamorous. Yeah. You, know what I mean? you know what's funny about that? They all have the same haircut. <laughs> 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 a 
Okay, we're going to leave Fox on the run here as we uh, close down. Maybe I'll play something else, too, before, as we're going. But uh, uh, thanks very much, Nick. And, All right, thanks, uh, Greg. And uh, w- w- let's have you on again before you're back in town. Maybe I like it better when you're actually here, though. What are you well, going to be here again, possibly? Um, I'm speaking at the Joshua Tree um, contacts. Contact in the desert? Yeah, in, in August. But, yeah. I mean, maybe I might do a TV thing out here before then. You never know. So okay. Well, how, try to have them, like, have you stay over on a Sunday night. <coughs> yes. All right. Thanks, Nick. Thanks, Greg. All right. <laughs>